This podcast is for informational purposes only and is not an offer or solicitation of an offer to buy or sell securities. SNN Network, SNN Inc., and the Planet Microcap Podcast and the representatives are not licensed brokers, broker dealers, market makers, investment bankers, investment advisors, analysts, or underwriters. We do not recommend any companies discussed. We may buy and sell securities in any company mentioned and may profit in the event those securities rise in value. We recommend you consult with a professional investment advisor, broker, or legal counsel before purchasing or selling any securities referenced in this podcast. Welcome to the Planet Microcap Podcast. I'm your host, Robert Kraft, and thank you all so much for your support and for tuning in. You can follow Planet Microcap on Twitter at Bobby K. Kraft. That's B-O-B-B-Y-K-K-R-A-F-T. You're listening to episode 184. If you have any questions or comments, please feel free to tweet at me, shoot me an email at rkraft at snnwire.com. And when you do get a chance, if you like what you hear, please rate and review Planet Microcap on iTunes. It really helps provide feedback for me and spread the microcap message. We just announced our initial presenting companies for our upcoming virtual investor event, the SNN Network Summer Virtual Event, which will be taking place on August 17th through 19, 2021. We have an incredible lineup across the board from our speakers, sponsors, presenting companies, and we have many more to, uh, to announce as we get close to our event, which is now about a month away. Some of the benefits of registering for, for the event That'll make sure that you'll be able to listen to and engage with all of the content that we publish and broadcast during those three days. And if this is of interest to you, and I highly recommend it, is if you'd like to do one-on-ones with any of our presenting companies, registering will allow you to do so as well. So again, our upcoming event is the SNN Network Summer Virtual Event taking place August 17th through 19, 2021. The website to register is conference.snn.network. Again, to register, go to our website, conference.snn.network. Click the register button, follow the prompt, and that's it. So I look forward to seeing you all there. Now for this episode of the Planet Microcap podcast, I spoke with Chris Bloomstrand. He is the president and CIO of Semper Augustus Investments Group. Chris is an absolute legend, a legend in value investing circles. And I'm really thankful for the privilege to speak with him, let alone him spending two and a half hours with me answering questions. And not just any questions, your questions that you sent in on Twitter. It was off the cuff, a lot of fun. And I'm just so thrilled to share our conversation today. So thank you again for tuning in to episode 184 of the Planet Microcap podcast. And please enjoy my conversation with Chris Bloomstrand. Welcome back, everybody, to the Planet Microcap Podcast. I'm your host, Robert Kraft. You can follow me on Twitter at Bobby K. Kraft. That's B-O-B-B-Y-K-K-R-A-F-T. And joining me today is a guest that I'm, I'm so thankful is even spending five minutes with me, let alone uh, however long this podcast ends up going for, which we have a bet whether or not this will be uh, either 20 minutes or two hours and 20 minutes. We'll see. But uh, I'm just so thankful that he's here and joining me today. We have Chris Bloomstrand on the on, on the docket as my guest. He is the president and CIO of Semper Augustus Investment Group. Chris, thank you for joining me today. How are you doing? Hey, Bobby. Well, thanks for having me. I'm a big fan of your pod. 
going to apologize in advance. I've got my lawn guy out here who hasn't been around since the fourth. Um, we've had a ton of rain and these poor guys have been working with us for a long time. And his father ran the business. He's had a crew of seven or eight guys. He has zero crew. I mean, you know, he's got a bunch of guys collecting checks and easier to sit at home and cash those than it is to go out and, you know, work hard in the summertime. So he's struggling to keep up with his clientele, but uh, he, he may, he may wander by. And for that, my dog, big oil down there might introduce himself at some point during the conversation and let us know that he's protecting the house from the lawn care crew. See, I thought you were going to apologize and be like, Bob, I know you run Planet Microcap and I'm not, we're not, we don't have too much microcap exposure on here. So I'm going to apologize. I thought you were going there. I didn't know. I, I didn't think you were going to apologize. Cause you know, that happens. We're, we're all working from home. You know, uh, you get a little, a little leaf blower action you know it's it's not it's not become ambient noise in the podcasting world no no my my ambition in life is to not own large and mid-cap companies to become micro caps Uh, (laughs) better to do better to do that the other way around well i trust that you have a strategy just in case they're on that way that you at least get out of those positions (laughs) before it ever gets that bad we've actually you know over the years we've and still do i own very concentrated portfolios, kind of, you know, 25 stocks max and typically always 75% thereabouts in the top 10 names. But, you know, even now 20% of our companies or our capital at least is invested in in companies with market caps below about seven and a half billion dollars. I've always had small mid cap exposure without any design of saying I need to own certain types of caps. I've got the latitude to own any business anywhere and just happens as you know, and you know, your audience knows, there's, you know, invariably a lot of value that, that 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 can be found with smaller businesses. They're, you know, less discovered and less covered, and oftentimes one-trick ponies. And there's a lot of buyer beware that goes with it. But you know, if you can do the homework and you know what you're doing, you can find some some really terrific opportunities with smaller businesses. That's for sure. Don't worry. Well, I I have a section carved out later in the pod where we'll talk about, you know, uh, some things to look out for from your perspective when it comes to microcaps and smaller businesses, you know, but for those who may not have, and you've done a number of interviews already, you have actually some, a couple even big ones coming up that you're telling me offline about that I'm really excited to hear. Um, but for those who may not have heard you on, you know, invest like the best or, or on Toby's show at Acquirer's podcast, you know, where, where did your passion for investing begin? You know, how, how'd you get to where you're at today? You know, I like to think it goes back to the womb, but no, I, I fell, I kind of fell in love with investing in college. I was, I played football and I thought I was going to play in the NFL. And at the same where, time, where at? University of Colorado. Nice. Actually did my first six months at the Air Force Academy trying to mesh engineering. I, I wanted to be an engineer. My family are all, you know, engineers. Um, and so I thought, you know, playing high level football, Air Force at the time was beating Notre Dame a couple of years in a row. They had a great program, obviously great education. So I tried that and it wound up being more military and more academics than, you know, young Chris bargained for. I really was just a football player. And so moved on. In fact, most of the guys that recruited me said, Chris, you know, when you leave the Air Force Academy, not if you leave, (laughs) we have a place for you. So they had a place for me at Boulder and played at Colorado and at at a point decided Diffie Q was less interesting than reading the Wall Street Journal and kind of got the bug for investing and played around with some scholarship money, blew all my money up on my first trade, um, but got into everything, got into candlestick charting and was reading investors business daily and doing can slim and 
and ultimately just had the bug for, you know, wanting to, you know, own businesses and common stocks and, you know, the career evolved from there. I worked for several years in a bank trust company, ran a mutual fund for them, worked with some pension funds, big public pension funds, a lot of wealthy families and an opportunity presented itself in late 1998 to hang a shingle and, uh, you know, with my business partner who had done public audit and accounting and was at the time working for Alps, big mutual fund distribution company in Denver. And we launched the firm. And at that moment of launching the firm, you were at the very kind of going into the peak of the bubble, late 90s, early 2000, market had been very bifurcated. You had the big nifty 50 blue chips that kind of peaked in 98, but then you had the peaking of the tech stocks that ran through March of 2000 when the market became very bifurcated. You're a small cap value manager at the time, and you came into the office for two or three years in a row with daily redemptions because your clients and your customers wanted to chase the next shiny thing, the next shiny object, and that was tech. And you had at the at the market peak in March, the NASDAQ with a market cap then, it was almost all tech companies. You didn't have uh, you know, you know, multi-listings and companies that moved from the NYSE to the NASDAQ. I mean, but you had the NASDAQ that was almost as big as the New York Stock Exchange by the market cap of its constituents, yet the profitability of the businesses that made up the NYSE were 10x those of the NASDAQ. I mean, 240 times earnings for the NASDAQ, almost 40 times for the S&P 500. And these little micro and small and mid caps had been you know, down. You had a really bad breadth in the market, which is similar to what we've seen in the last few weeks. But you had a ton of value, little banks and thrifts and insurance companies, Berkshire eventually, which was far from a small mid cap, um, but got cut in half. I was buying fire truck manufacturers and little banks and thrifts at six, seven, eight, nine, ten 10 times well, the market was that expensive. Um, so it was a great period. And, um, you know, really, you know, for having the majority of our capital, and I don't think about attribution, but it was simply owning some really, really good businesses that were small cap companies, Ross stores, which I bought in, um, you know, right at the darn near the, the, the stock market high, but the lows for all the small mid cap stuff at 10 times earnings, they had 350 stores made something like two and a half times our money in the next two and a half, three years, sold it with a mistake of the stock having, you know, grown 25x from where I sold it. But it was a tiny business, 350 stores, very small cap. And the stock had been really weak because it was in that small cap bucket and small cap value guy had to sell it every day because redemptions were going out the door. So I, you kind of dream for those kinds of periods. And to have the latitude that we do, um, you know, I always you know, hold out a lot of affection for smaller businesses, but the ability to buy small businesses and to buy them in size at times when it makes sense, I think can be a real advantage. You know, I've never wanted to be pigeonholed in a style box. And so your world of the small and the micro cap has always been very attractive to me. And what's that feeling like when, you know, you see a potential, you, you see, you see an idea, you want to size more into it, but you're dealing with, you know, you have, you're getting all these redemptions happening. I mean, wh I, what do you do in those situations? How do you, how do you handle that, you know, from uh, psychological? Well, knock wood, we've never had a, we, we've never experienced the redemption end of the phase, oh, okay. but, but I can okay. tell you, you saw the flows of capital back during that crazy market, you know, 20 plus years ago. Mm -hmm. And I can't even imagine, I mean, you know, great investors, Walter Schloss, who, you know, was at Columbia before Warren Buffett, 
you know, also, you know, you know, arguably, you know, one of the best track records of all time. I mean, you know, Walter was a guy that owned a bunch of companies, but he did some of the net nets like Ben Graham had done legendary track record. His son had gone into the business with him. And in the late nineties, he lost a huge amount of his clients. I mean, this guy had beat the S and P 500 by 10 points a year for a career and people thought he had lost his touch. I mean, you know, people thought Warren Buffett had lost his touch in the late nineties. Today, they think he's lost his touch again, which is mystifying to me, but yeah, I mean, it's tough. You know, the, the herd runs hard longer than it, it should run. And you get a lot of groupthink, and, you know, those that value businesses, um, you know, who are trying to mesh business quality and price where price does matter, you know, you're going to have periods like the value crowd has suffered in the last five, 10 years where, you know, there's just seemingly one type of investing that works and that's chasing businesses that don't have profits and chasing businesses that have a lot of opportunity in front of them and are rewarded to so with very high stock prices. And, you know, if, if you're trying to value, you know, understandable and no knowing earning power and not overpay for it, there are times when you don't want to play the game that's being played and yeah, you know, human nature being what it is, client mentality is not always meshed with, you know, I think the, you know, proper long-term wiring, um, you know, to a good value investor, to a good small cap investor that pays attention to price. You don't really worry about the short-term noise of stock prices moving up and down, but people like to get rich fast and they like to see their monthly statement or their daily login and they want to see green on the screen and they want to see higher and higher net worth. And that's not always really what you want. I mean, you know, if you've got cash and cash flows, or even if you've simply got dividend yields coming into a portfolio, you want to have low prices. If you own portfolios that are buying their shares back, you want to have low prices. And, you know, you feel good by a stock trading at a higher price. But if you own a business that happens to, you know, be spending some percentage of its capital and it's, it's free cash or it's operating income buying back shares, you certainly would rather have that done at low prices than high prices. And so, but again, human nature means what it is. And with short-term leash for capital, you want to chase the next best thing. And there's just, you know, in a lot of places, very short-term investment performance oriented think. And, you know, I'm blessed with a client base that's been with us for a long time or those that have hired us over the years tend to find us for the right reasons. I mean, they've read my letters, they've seen me on podcasts and they come in to Semper Augustus, my firm, you know, kind of armed with an understanding of what we do. And for that, I don't have jittery clients that are worried about what happens in the short term. Um, you know, I had a four-year period from the end of 2011 to the end of 2015, where we were, for the history of the firm, up about 11% compound annual. The S&P was only like 1% a year at that point. Because again, you know, we started the firm really at the height of the bubble. Um, and then I had four years 2012, 13, 14, 15, where in the first three of those, our returns were about seven uh, or 10 rather, I guess that was 10. Market was doing 22 for those three years. And then in 2015, if you remember, it was a you know really bad breadth period. Um, market S&P was up, I think 1.4. I was down 10. Berkshire was down 12 and a half. And I had legitimate concern from some of our clients wondering now for four years in a row of four years of consecutive underperformance, what's going on? St. Louis 
with you guys. What's going on in Omaha with Berkshire Hathaway being down 12.5% in 15? Has Warren Buffett lost his touch? And the, the I've always explained the answer is I can't control stock prices for three months, three years, four years. You know, isn't it better to look under the hood and figure out if the companies that we own are getting more valuable over time, if portfolio activity is adding to the earning power of the businesses that we own, which is the right answer. But, you know, when you have those spells of time from it, you know, albeit, you know, some very short to four years, which in my opinion is a nanosecond in terms of, you know, the compounding of business value, which is done with a much longer lens. Um, you know, as an investor, you've got to deal with the human emotion and the human nature of clients whose who's, who's, who's time um, sensitivities are not always aligned with the allocator of capitals. Right. Well, you, you know, as you mentioned, there's, you know, in the last kind of five to 10 years, it's been, it's been interesting to say the least, if you have more of a value focused approach. I mean, you know, as you say on your website, you know, fundamental value-driven investor um, and, and everybody listening in who knows you knows that you very much focus on value. But how would you say, especially in the last five to 10 years, I mean, has your investing style changed? Have you adjusted to some of what's been going on in the markets? I mean, have, have you changed it up in any respect? No, I don't think, you know, I, I think we've been very consistent in terms of philosophy and if you read the history of my client letters, you'll see the thinking really doesn't change. I think the cumulative wisdom and the understanding of business grows over time. You know, you spend a lot of time researching and trying to understand companies and industries. And my understanding has grown. Um, you know, I've got a better sense, I think, of human nature uh, than I did. You know, we've we've been lucky. I mean, we had that four-year period where you know the compound returns through that point had been eleven. You know, here at mid-year, we just ran our, you know, updated numbers and our stocks have now averaged 12 a year, you know, if you take cash out of the equation. Um, so we've, we've, got, we've, we've run it up from 11 to 12, which means we've made on average something north of 12% for the last five years. So I think from the end of 15, we're well ahead of even the S&P, which is so driven by, you know, the big tech and, you know, you know some of the larger companies. So, so we've not had a lot of performance um, issues. In fact, my my concern really is we've made too much money in too short a period of time. You know, I like to think about the ability to make money hinges on the assessment of profitability, and I should earn if properly assessed the earnings yield of my portfolio. And I look at at, at additional return two ways. One, I think this is a, I think this is a pretty useful um, way to look at capital. If I take the earnings yield and I can buy a business at 75 cents on the dollar of what I think intrinsic value is, then over some period of time, I'm gonna make a 33% return on top of my earnings yield. So if my earnings yield today happens to be 8%, portfolio trading at 12 and a half times, which is remarkable in the context of a market multiple that's double that, you know, on a price to sales, price to book, you know, we're half of the multiples of the broad market, but I'm gonna make the earnings yield and I'm gonna accrete the discount to value over time. And over enough time, period of years, you know, that, that's tended to work out such that I've made the earnings yield plus two or 3%. I think the better way to look at that math and that dynamic is start with the earnings yield. And I know I'm gonna get a portion of profits from the businesses that I own paid as dividends. In my case, the payout ratio 
is way lower than the broad market. I'm only getting about 20% of my profits back as dividends. So you'll see this a lot in smaller cap businesses that don't pay large portions of profits. They're reinvesting for their growth. I've got over 80% of profits being reinvested in retained earnings and then being allocated by the managers of the companies that we own. And at present, you know, our companies earn north of 13% returns on equity capital. And I can tell you that these, these folks that we own really are investing at those returns. They have opportunity sets within their businesses to reinvest. So I like to think that, you know, I'm going to make the earnings yield and with enough capital retained that actually gets invested at profitable returns, my returns over time are going to gravitate up to the returns on equity of the businesses that I own. And, and, and that math tends to work over time as well. Where that math breaks down for the index investor getting 45% of profits as dividends with 55% retained, you've got a puny dividend yield, 1.6% on the S&P 500, for example. My dividend yield is actually higher than the markets, even though you know, I've got only 20% coming back to me as dividends versus 45% for the broad market. But the 55% that's retained with an ROE of 15% for the market is not being reinvested in the businesses. All of that profit with the addition of net debt that is taken on has gone to share repurchases, buying back shares to offset the dilution that happens on the front end of giving away shares and restricted share units and stock options. And so there's very little reinvestment in R&D. There's very little reinvestment in CapEx. There's very little cash that's spent on acquisitions that are accretive. Money is going to offset dilution. And for that, these businesses are not earning 15 ROEs. The money to the extent shares are being bought back at valuations of 25 to 30 times where you're getting earnings yields of 4% or less in my mind is really destroying capital. And you know, a CFO will tell you, well, I can borrow at three, why not buy shares back at a 4% earnings yield? Okay, fine, but when you handcuff the business by putting too much debt on the balance sheet and into the capital structure, you've got a problem. And so, you know, we just sit here in today's world with kind of a bifurcation of, of valuation, but also a bifurcation of, you know, good capital allocation on one hand and kind of poor on the other hand. And, I think it's a tough game today because, you know, these people that run our public companies, not ours, but broadly speaking in the public markets, are so motivated to get rich in the three or four or five years that they're in charge of the businesses that there's not really an alignment anymore of, you know, creating long-term durable earning power for a business. You've got a lot of noise that drives, is trying to drive share prices higher in the short term. And that goes back to kind of, you know, typical you know, individual client mentality is it's better to get rich fast. No, well, actually, it's better to have, you know, share prices cheap, you know, kind of perpetually if you don't need your all your money today. And it's just, it, it, it's a different way of thinking and it, it, it suits us very well. So, so then, you know, you mentioned that there's, there's a lot of short-termism, not just amongst, you know, uh, investors, you know, but I mean, but that's nothing new is this idea of wanting to get rich quick. That's nothing new. You know, but what's interesting is, is, you know, what you just said about how there's a lot of the, 
public company management that have that three, four, five year time horizon where, you know, they're not thinking further out than that, whether it's because they don't, they're not as incentivized as maybe a, an owner operator or maybe the founder of some, you know, even small microcasts, you know, some of these owner operator founder uh, still run businesses, you know, so for you and, and your investing strategy, you know, in 2021, how are you sifting through some of that noise? Obviously probably sticking to your knitting, of course, but you still got to sift through the noise that, and there's a lot more of it. So, you know, what, what are some of the things that you do in order to find some of those opportunities that, uh, you know, for your fund? Well, you do have to sift and, you know, there's 30 years in my case of looking at a lot of businesses and industries and, you know, having a pretty good sense of what I would define to be a good business. But at the same time, you know, if you take every one of the management teams of the companies that we own, you know, in cases you have to, you know, taste a little of your own vomit from, from time to time, because these people aren't perfect. And, you know, I'm not perfect. I, you know, wouldn't dare to feign to tell a company how to run their business and their operations. You're not perfect. (laughs) Come on, Chris, let's go. Far far from it. Um, You know, ask my wife. Uh, (laughs) No, I, you know, I think, you know, you've got to make concessions. So, you know, kind of back to the stock option discussion that we, that, you know, that we just kind of started down the path of, you know, if broadly speaking, the typical company is giving away 2% of its shares per year, I own plenty of companies that, that use stock as part of executive compensation. You can't get away from it. Um, and so you kind of have to determine who's doing it judiciously and, you know, who's aligning to the degree they can, the shareholder. It's not done well. But, you know, when a company like Coca-Cola back in the day used to have a return on asset, return on equity component to, you know, paying bonuses and, and paying share-based compensation to employees. That, that doesn't exist anymore. And so many companies, we've gone away from a return on asset, return on equity, return on capital type motivation yardstick to, you know, nonsensical things like sales growth or EBITDA growth, or, you know, talking about, you know, Tesla where, you know, Elon was given over 20% of the company in share grants and he gets paid hurdles for getting a prototype out and bringing a product to market. Nowhere in Elon's pay package is there a motivation for the business to earn a return on equity capital. The closest you get is an EBITDA measure. Well, as a capital intensive business, depreciation expense is a real thing for a business that uses leverage in the capital structure. Interest expense is a real thing. And you can't ignore those charges when you're a capital intensive business. And so there's just a lot of folly in comp and, 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 you know, it, it's just one example. You know, I think it's human nature, again, back to human nature, but a bigger business with more assets and more cash flow and more income is generally going to pay an executive team more money. The bigger the company, the more the comp. And so there's a motivation to be bigger. Uh, you know, Sorry, I didn't, I didn't mean to interrupt, but like, where, where would you say that inflection point was where now it's finally, okay, we're going to go away from return. Uh, I think you said return on, on, on equity, I think, or as, as a measure of, of how much executives should get paid. Where, where do you think that changed? What, what was the inflection point? Probably, probably the tech bubble. I've got a history of stock options and, and restricted shares in one of my letters, maybe two or three years ago. 
you know, if you go back to the 30s, 40s, it wasn't done. There were periods when, in fact, it was frowned upon. And even from a regulatory standpoint, you could have interpreted that a share repurchase was, um, you know, reg regulatory infraction um, under the SEC Act, under various regu regulation. You know, really, by the time we got into the 60s, there were a handful of companies that were buying back shares. Henry Singleton, obviously, some of the conglomerates used the method, but it wasn't very pervasive. Drug companies in the 70s started buying back some shares, and you started to see some option programs. But, you know, up through the 70s, the majority of comp was cash, and it was bonuses paid as cash. You did not have a big use of shares. It really was the, the introduction of all the tech companies, Silicon Valley, if you will, that, you know, companies at the outset didn't have a lot of cash on hand. You had a young software business. Um, you had browser businesses that would, you know, pay or ordinary day-to-day -day expenses using stock options. You know, it was a currency that didn't have a cost. And, you know, back in the day, you didn't expense your stock options through the income statement. Um, they were ignored. Um, and so, you know, you really started to see with those booming businesses, a larger percentage of shares being given away as a stock options. You know, and they got to be big, you know, it got to be five, six, 7% of companies. You still have companies like Twitter that gives away six or 7% a year. I mean, you know, it, it hasn't gone away, but then what happened of course was you were giving so many shares away. Microsoft was giving away four or five, six percent a year. The share count was growing despite the fact that Microsoft in the 90s was throwing off enormous amounts of cash. Their profit margin got up to 38 percent. Um, you know, stock traded at a 620 billion dollar market value at the at the peak at, at their peak, you know, right around January 1, 2000. They were doing 38% profit, so let's call it 7.5% billion in profit. But they had grown the share count by 40 or 50% over its period of time as a public company. And, you know, they didn't need capital. They weren't selling shares to the public. They were giving shares to the employees. And a whole bunch of people in Redmond got really, really rich for the generosity of the company being willing to give away its shares. But there was dilution on the upside. They were making so much money, you could say, so what? And then, of course, the tech bubble peaked and March 10, 2000 came and that whole bifurcation flipped and all my small mid cap stuff and Berkshire was straight up for two years. The NASDAQ stuff was straight down for two years. And you had these people that had been given, you know, these enormous stock option grants with strike prices where the stocks were materially below the stock prices. And for a period of time, companies would reprice the options and you know, should the, you know, at, at that point, there was pushback from shareholders saying, you know, you can't make this a one-way street. You can't reprice these things. And so what really happened was you saw the introduction then of restricted share units, some with only a time vesting requirement, some with performance vesting requirements. You know, there's some operational hurdle that had to be met, but the restricted shares, you know, doesn't have a strike price. It's simply time passes or performance passes and as long as you're on hand for the duration of the period of time required, you own, the, you own the shares. So you don't get the leverage that you get with stock options. But, you know, for the whole of the 1990s, it was a one-way street. The stock market went straight up. I mean, from 1981 to the market peak in 2000, the S&P did almost 20% a year. The NASDAQ was up 5x in the last four years of the advance from 1996 to 2000. Well, obviously, by the time 
2001, 2000, 2001, 2002 rolled around and the NASDAQ was down 80% from 5,000 to 1,000. And so many of those stocks had gotten crushed. Then you saw the, you know, the, you know, the big rollout of restricted shares, which meant that the percentage of shares being given away were now smaller because you don't have the leverage that you get with stock options. And then in the last 10 years, we've just gone nuts and we're still giving away a lot of RSUs, but they've crept up as a percentage of the shares outstanding being given away. And so this, this, this incentive, this drive, this need of companies to mask, if you will, mask may be a heavy word, but to mask the dilution of 2% of shares being given away in aggregate on the front end, and then to buy back shares. And so in my opinion, you've had a very expensive stock market. And so when you're now buying back 3% of the company per year, and you're paying very rich multiples to cash flows and to earnings for the price of those repurchases, buying shares for north of what you'd call intrinsic value, you're destroying capital, but you're shrinking the share count, which in aggregate has shrunk until this COVID year of 2020 by about 1%. So, you know, a, a lot there to chew on, but you know, the, the job of the analyst, the job of the investor is to is to try to find businesses and management teams where you're aligned, where where when, you know, the shareholder wins, if the management team wins, and you extrapolate that to a company like Costco, which, you know, drives their success by ensuring that the customer wins first, and that the employees win at the same time that the customers win. And that model happens to work such that, you know, if those two constituents win, then the shareholders are going to win as well. And hence the management team will win as well. But, you know, they start with the alignment in the right place. So there, there are a lot of places where it's done well. But, you know, I've always said 95% of public companies are effectively Ponzi schemes, which means in my mind, they don't really functionally earn their cost of capital over time if you adjust for accounting properly. But because you're in the capital markets and you have access to debt, you have access to public debt, bank debt, you have access to new shares, you can make acquisitions, you can monkey around with accounting and take write-offs and write-downs. You can mask the fact that you're really not earning your cost of capital for a very long period of time and perpetuate, if you will, what in my mind are just lousy businesses, which at, at the core, companies that don't earn their cost of capital. There's, there's a lot of that. And so, you know, if you can, you know, navigate your way through financial statements and try to figure out whether cash is really durably being generated, you know, next to its cost, to me, that's how you invest. And that really, if you're going to troll around in the world of micro caps and small caps, that's what it's all about is making sure your management teams are aligned with you and that the business is really either profitable or stands to be profitable within some reasonable period of time, right? Without question especially in small micro nano caps. I mean, you, the, you ha management has to be aligned. I mean, we've seen it time and time again. Very rare when they're not aligned and, you know, things tend to work out. But, you know, it, it, that, was, that was some great insight there. And great characterization. I think make that a social clip. Uh, most public companies are Ponzi schemes. Look at that. No. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I'm just kidding. I you might, have to edit, you might have to edit that out. <laughs> More fashionable. You know, better way to describe it. It's not that much of a stretch, for sure. And it was a it was it was a it was a, it was a loose metaphor. Everybody it doesn't actually. Mean that. Yeah, we're not naming <laughs> names here. No, we're not naming names. That's right. 
All right. Well, you know, going into today, I, you know, we, I, I knew we were going to have many rabbit holes that we could go down and I wanted to be, I wanted to be more inclusive with our interview today because I know you've, you've, you've given so much of your time to do some of these. And uh, I put out there literally a half hour before we spoke today on Twitter about if anybody has any questions or, or topics that they want us to cover. So I figured I'd go in a row of, of, of some of the questions and things that were sent in. So do you, do you want to, uh, you mind indulging me? Yeah, I've, yeah. Twitter's been great. I've been on it for about a year and a half. Um, All right. Kind so, of depending on the Twitter set that you call from, I've got some really good friends over in the the, the Tesla corner of the Twitterverse and a couple other corners that you know, I perhaps should not have gone down. But yeah, yeah, yeah. Sure, let's do it. All right, here we go. So, um, it, actually, the first question had to do with you know we. We, we talked offline about what we were going to chat about today and, and we wanted to talk about Berkshire a little bit. And, you know, obviously you're a shareholder. You're also a shareholder of Costco. I know you mentioned that earlier. So I wanted to make sure that, right. You're so, of course, so currently shareholder of Costco. Yeah, I, I am. And, you know, word of okay. caution, I, I did um, sell the majority of our shares late last year. Okay. Uh, for price reasons. They're absolutely one of the best businesses extant. Um, I, you know, we, we can spend a minute on Costco. I mean, you know, when I bought it for the first time in, I think, 2004, they had 350, 375 stores. They were going to grow by 20 to 25 stores a year. So they were growing square footage of the enterprise by 7, 7.5%. Today, with an 800-store system, um, they're still only growing at the cadence of about 20 to 25 stores. So you're really only looking at, at kind of new square footage growth or new store growth of two and a half percent a year. So, you know, the economics of the business will still allow the bottom line to drive higher than the top line over time. And it's still a business that's going to grow same store sales at multiples, you know, twice at least uh, the inflation rate. The management team is beautiful. Um, but, you know, I paid $29 for the stock in 04. We've earned $29 in special dividends alone over that period of time. If you mm. add up the regular dividends, it's probably close to that $29. I haven't done that, but I should do that. But I mean, the stock's $410 or $12 today. Um, so you're trading, mm. you know, 40 plus times what the business is going to earn. And you know, I think one of the new one of the one of the, the kind of the hidden nuances of a company like Costco is when they open a new unit, it winds up taking eight to ten years to be fully profitable. You know, their typical store is going to do 180, uh, you know, 200 million dollars in revenues. Well, when they start, the new stores are doing 125, 130 million. They don't have a full complement of membership, and so it takes a while to throughput the volumes through the the unit, but once the unit is mature, I mean, they earn high 20 type returns on capital. The subsequent capital requirements are almost nothing. They turn the inventories very fast. They operate with negative working capital. It's simply the enterprise won't grow as fast as it once did. So in places where I didn't have a big tax burden, I sold a bunch of the stock because I mean, essentially, I mean, the stock's five years ahead of itself and I've got other uses for capital but I'm not going to harm a taxable investor that has a $29 per share cost basis by giving up a third of my position to capital gains taxes. And you certainly wouldn't do that today if we have these new Biden tax plans put in place and we move the marginal tax rate on capital gains for those that have a lot of income, you know, call it a million dollars. But, um, 
moving the marginal rate from 20% plus 3.8% for the, the Medicare, you know, or the, the, you know, the Obama healthcare tax, plus whatever political state rate is in existence to almost double that. I mean, moving the capital gain rate and the tax on dividends to 39.6% plus 3.8% plus any applicable state, you're pushing 50%. Well, you know, between here and there, I'm buying the stock for clients that don't own it. I'm buying the stock you know, below today's prices or at today's prices five years from now, depending on which way it shakes out. So yeah, I mean, for full disclosure, I do own it, but um, you got to be careful with the price you pay. And so right. you know, to me, don't, don't simply take an investor's 13 F and assume because the stock is in there that it makes it a, uh, an attractive buy at, at, at present. There's, you know, you got to kind of do your own filtering and your own work and make your own decisions. So just word of caution, word of disclosure. I hope everybody listened to that. That's probably the best word of caution that you could possibly hear. And uh, I've definitely made those mistakes in the past. Yeah, that's for sure. Um, All right. So we're going to dig into some of these Twitter questions then now. Um, The first one has to do with Berkshire. Um, You know, in, I think it was, I think you said it was in the end of May where you had this fun uh, couple threads um, about, you know, little known investor named Chamath you know, how he compared his returns to Berkshire, you know, uh, and the first question has to do with that, you know, coming from, from uh, Srivatsan Prakash. What's up, Sri? Good, good, good to get a question from you on here. He's actually, he was just a guest on the show. Um, he wants to know why, why, why is Chamath the next Warren Buffett and how is he building the next Berkshire Hathaway? <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I love I love it, Sheree. That was a, that was a good one. You know, th- th- there will be great investors over time. There's no doubt. There's there's there can only be one Warren Buffett. I mean, and you take the history of his partnerships, and then you take the management of Berkshire Hathaway from 1965 forward. You take the climates in which Mr. Buffett's allocated capital when he's pivoted away from businesses that were rotten, you know, the first three big businesses that Berkshire bought uh, as Berkshire, the textile business, of course, but then diversified retailing and blue chip stamps all wound up essentially failing. And it was the pivot to insurance with national indemnity in 1967 and ultimately Geico and various others, Genry in 1998, when Mr. Buffett used the stock as currency, when the stock portfolio of the insurers were inflated, um, when Berkshire's own share price was inflated, essentially pivoting it away from a very highly valued stock portfolio and stock to a, you know pick up a large portfolio of bonds inside another reinsurance company. You know, th- th- that kind of decision-making has stood the test of time. Um, you know, here in the last, well, since the Gen Redeal, when the world really changed, you know, we got to excessive levels of leverage, you know, GDP on a, and population and inflation adjusted basis is growing way slower since the late nineties than it had for the prior, you know, hundred years. Um, but th- th- there's only one Warren Buffett and there will be other great investors. And if the media is so kind to crown some said investor is the next Warren Buffett, then that said investor ought probably kind of poo-poo it and 
demonstrate some humility. And so I think, you know, I, I never, I'd never even heard of this guy, Chamath, but, um, you know, he embraced that and thought, you know, publicly, I think perhaps that he is, and he'd like to have his own shareholder meeting and whatever. And I ignored all that as noise. I'm not a fan of the SPAC structure. I had very little understanding of his history six months ago when I first heard of the guy, other than he had been at Facebook and had done some good things there. But when I saw, I happened to see his annual letter this year and a direct comparison of his results against Berkshire Hathaway's for what Chamath said were his first uh, nine years versus versus the first nine years of Warren Buffett running Berkshire Hathaway. And, well, I looked at this comparison table and thought, this is just odd. You know, I happen to probably, you know, have a better sense of Berkshire's forward and backward compound annual growth series, both by book value per share and by common stock than many would. And when I saw a comparison of Berkshire's returns at 12 and a half percent, well, there was only one moment in the history of Mr. Buffett running Berkshire where the stock had averaged on a compound annual basis of 12 and a half percent. And that happened to be in 19, at the end of 1974, because Berkshire was down almost half in that single year. You, know, you had a nasty bear market that took the S&P down 50%, but Berkshire stock was only down about two and a half percent in 1973. It was 1974 that was crippling. And so I thought, well, this is a convenient way to run this. And you ran that and, you know, I saw, I saw this guy's numbers presented on a gross of fee basis and not a net of fee basis and using internal rates of return and not time-weighted rates of return. And I dug into that and, and read through the footnotes of that letter. And there were a lot of inconsistencies. Firstly, he did not have a 10-year track record. Uh, he was off Berkshire's returns. Uh, were actually 10 years, not the nine years that were labeled in the table. And so I sent a message out that wound up being pretty widely read, critical of that comparison. He did respond to that and said, yeah, you know, good catch. It, it actually is a 10-year, not a nine-year. And then in further digging, I think that's when I first read the footnote. I didn't even read the footnote before, footnote of his letter before uh, I wrote my, sent my tweet out into the either. But uh, he did not have a 10-year track record. Uh, he had a track record that started, I think, on, on uh, I guess, June 1 of 2011, maybe. So he had a nine-year and seven-month, and you could you know, argue with the margin is five months really essential. But when the Berkshire share price is down by half in one year, it, it, it was too favorable of comparison. Subsequent to that tweet going out, I, I then learned, I had a reporter call me and say, hey, you know, have you ever looked a little deeper under the hood into what's going on at the social capital? And I hadn't. I'd never, I didn't, I hadn't seen his prior letters. Um, so it turns out his letters are on the website. Well, he had made the same comparison in the prior two years. So he had a seven-year return, eight-year return, or what he called a nine-year return in Berkshire. And when I looked at those, when I saw, A, back in that first series of those three annual letters of his, he did present his gross return and his net return, and the disparity was unbelievable. I mean, knocking a gross return down from something like 31% to 18%, minus rounding, whatever, I mean, that, that gets you to on the order of a 3% management fee and 30% of profit on what were venture cap private funds that require liquidity events to really get to performance. 
And, um, you know, by dropping that net of fee comparison really distorted the truth. But what, what really jumped out at me when I saw those numbers, again, I've got in my letter somewhere around here, um, probably not handy, that compound annual series. So, so all the way from 1965, using both book value per share and the performance of the stock price by year. And then in, in Berkshire's letter, you know, the returns at the bottom on a compound, but not the yearly intervals. And so I have the year, yearly intervals. And what I noticed was in his first comparison, he used Berkshire's change in book value per share and used Berkshire's returns at something like 16%. Had he chosen the stock price return for Berkshire's first seven years, you would have been mid-20s, call it 26%. So he shaved 10% by choosing the, the weaker of Berkshire's two numbers. Then for some reason, he skipped a year, actually changed the start date of his quote-unquote composite um, from August August to June, went backwards by a period of months, which is really unusual. I've never seen anybody create a composite and in, in, in subsequent periods, choose an earlier start date. I mean, that's just insane to change the start date anyway. But ultimately, used the change in book value, skip a year, change in book value, and then flip in the most recent comparison for his 2020 letter, used the change in stock price. And so had you simply used net returns and used consistently Berkshire's change in book value per share, for each of those periods, or even using Berkshire's change in stock price and used what really was a nine-year return or nine years in change, he never had outperformance. And I have got adjusted tables in a series of successive tweets. So, you know, I didn't mean to go to war with Chamath. You know, I'm sure he's done some great things. There was a New Yorker piece. There were a couple other pieces, fairly critical of kind of how that social capital unwound. So I'd be curious to know what happened to the capital after he was gone or after he started claiming that he was no longer involved in the performance of those vehicles. I mean, you take a venture cap series of five funds. If you're going to show me a composite return, you ought to do, you know, make it an annual breakout of returns. Show me by year what each of those funds has done, which wasn't done. So there's a lot to be, a lot, a lot left to be desired. And for a guy that's out chairing and running, CEOing public companies and running a bunch of SPACs and raising money from retail investors, Hold yourself out as the next Warren Buffett and embrace it and make that comparison, you know, at least be realistic in terms of making the comparison and, and uh, just do a lot left to be desired for me. So I, yeah, I, I, I just, I just don't understand, you know, cause like you said, like, look, we don't, I'm not trying, we're not trying to go on like a Chamath bashing thing here because, you know, look, he's doing, some, I'm sure he's doing some good things and whatnot, but you know, why, why do that? You know, why, why even just why, why, you know, I mean, I know there's probably a very simple answer to that, but at the same time, it's like, you know, there's going to be Chris Bloomstrands out there and, you know, uh, Matt Peterson and others who are, who are, who are, are Buffettites that, you know, there's a reason that there's tens of thousands of people that go to the Berkshire Hathaway meeting that, you know, worship at the altar of, of Buffett and Munger and everything that they've accomplished at Berkshire. Like, Why? Why do that? Why publicly put yourself out there to compare yourself and then, you know, do kind of what you did with the numbers there? You know, it doesn't make sense to me. It's bad optics, um, obviously done for a reason. I mean, if you're, 
you're in the mode of raising capital, you kind of do what you do. You know, we just launched a billionaire into space over the weekend. And this it turns out it's one of Chamath's SPACs now public companies. Um, you know, you raise $500 million in capital, Virgin Galactic, obviously. I mean, yeah, I saw you, you tweet up, that out. Yeah. You look up the cumulative history of Virgin, and they've raised something like a billion dollars in capital. They've burned up 300 or 350 million. So you've got 600, 650 million in cash, very few physical, tangible assets. You know, maybe some rockets, maybe some facilities in New Mexico. I don't know. I don't know anything about this business. But what I know is they're burning cash. I don't know the business case, the business model of how many people are going to pay, how much, however much it's going to cost to go spend 30 seconds in space or close to space to have a low or no gravitational experience. I'd have a hard time justifying the $10 billion market value of this company as existed on Friday before they launched the guy into space. And when you come back down and say, we're going to raise another $500 million in an at-the-market transaction, we're not going to register any securities, but we're just going to sell shares to the public with a $10 billion valuation against our $600, $650 million in cash, damn near doubling the, the, you know, the net assets of the firm because the stock has a $10 billion valuation. It's promotional. And again, I you know, to the extent I've, I've, I've regret, regretfully in many cases have been on Twitter and it's been a wonderful tool. Um, I, I'm seeing a lot of the parallels to the late nineties where there were a lot of promotional activity and a lot of retail investors got pulled into it, the mania at the peak and blown up and burned and same things happening today. You know, you may have some decent SPAC operators that, that don't have the same dilutive characteristics, but there, there are a lot of abuses taking place today and a lot of innocent small people that don't do their homework are getting sucked in. So fair, you know, the market's the market and, you know, it'll, it's going to teach you a lesson for sure. But um, I, I think the, pro the promotional behavior, the abuses of accounting, um, you know, the abuses and, and, and the pushings of, you know, what, what ought to be acceptable behavior is bothersome to me. And so I've been willing to, you know, shed a little light on some of this nonsense and, you know, for right, right, you know, rightly or wrongly, I did the same thing in the late '90s. I wrote one of my early client letters about Microsoft, saying shareholders are going to lose money for the next 15 years. Back to that 620 billion market cap on 20 billion in sales and seven and a half billion in profit. Great company. The stock was just way, way, way ahead of itself. And when you were paying those prices, as time told, you did lose money for 15 years. Even with the dividends they started paying and the special three dollar or three dollar and fifty cent per share dividend they paid. You know, five years after that, you lost money for 15 years. And since then, Microsoft has only compounded at something like seven and a half percent from the point that I wrote that piece. Um, you know, it, you know, today trading at a, you know, two plus trillion dollar market value. Um, but it was that expensive. And, you know, the shared count rising and the dilution that came from it, Microsoft quickly after that changed its behavior. And, you know, started granting fewer shares and, you know, kind of reverse course. And when the stock got cheap, they did buy back and have bought back a whole bunch of shares with the cash that's been thrown off. And so the behavior at Microsoft has been terrific. Um, but I think it was, you know, arguably fairly abusive, but not on the scale of, you know, some of the nonsensical, you know, schemes that existed then and the schemes that exist today. But it was aggressive behavior and, you know, they learned and grew up. But you've got a lot of people that need to grow up today. And I fear that a lot of small people that can't afford to lose a whole bunch of money are in the process of, 
you know, feeding the casino and they're going to lose a whole bunch of money. And that, that, that bothers me a lot. Absolutely. All right. So I think, I think that's, I think that's a good button on, on that topic. You know, I, let here, I got a few, what? Mercifully. Mercifully. <laughs> you know, um, uh, the next question that came in was at diligent at dollar diligent. Uh, he wants to know if you've changed your opinion on Fang. I, yeah, I had a piece, I don't know, th three years ago, four years ago, that simply stated, you take these five businesses, market caps of whom are more than, were then more than 20% or right at 20% of the market value of the stock market, through the lens of what had evolved over the prior 10 years in terms of sales growth and earnings growth and operating cash growth, over a decade uh, on a on a per share basis, and you know the stocks grew kind of in line with the the businesses, but you know I think an expectation that you would see twenty plus percent returns for another ten years or another twenty years, I simply extrapolated kind of what I did with the Microsoft piece back in early two thousand, and simply said you know if you grow at these rates of growth, both by sales, by earnings, and by market value. Um, you know, you would get to where, you know, these, the aggregate of these five big tech businesses, I, you know, call them tech businesses, would exceed the market value of the entire stock market. And, you know, at a point would be into the quadrillions of dollars and it can't happen. So somewhere the law of gravity and the law of large numbers takes hold, regulation takes hold, competition takes hold, and there'll be a give back. You know, when Mr. Buffett was buying Apple a few years ago, he's paying 12 or 13 times earnings. These companies largely have not been expensive. You know, they, they, they weren't trading at the valuations that a Microsoft was trading at back in the late 90s, you know, at you know, 31 times sales. But, you know, here in the last three, four years where the stocks have compounded faster than the businesses have grown, these are very profitable enterprises. You know, Microsoft's margin dropped from 38% down to 22. It's back over 30 today. Amazon's growing into its overhead and profitability is screaming higher. But, you know, they're wonderfully great businesses. Uh, you know, I just think, continue to believe that you simply can't expect the high returns that you've had. Now, that doesn't mean that you can't make an acceptable return. And, you know, if I believe the broad S&P 500 will return not much more than maybe four to 6% per year, these things are still growing. They're still growing very fast, but you know, to me, you've got to measure what a terminal or at least a ten-year-out or fifteen-year-out world looks like. And if something's trading at thirty-five times earnings today, and earnings are not depressed, and the business is very large already, at some point, when the growth rate of the top line slows, or the profitability of the business comes under attack again, either through competition, through regulation, through disintermediation whatever, does the multiple decline from 35 times to 17 and a half times? Do you cut that multiple in half? And for how many years of growth of 12 or 13 or 14% does it take to justify a multiple contracting from 35 to 17 and a half, let's say? And so, no, I, I have no opinion that the, I've never believed these are bad businesses. They're wonderful. I've, I own Microsoft. In fact, I bought Microsoft you know, six or seven years after it peaked in 2000 but I was paying 10 times earnings for it. And there was a period when nobody wanted to own it. Made a whole bunch of money with it and wound up selling it far too early a few years ago. 
who made a lot of money, um, should have owned Google. I mean, that was just kind of a no-brainer. I, um, but you know, the others I've got you know various reasons. I happen to have you know decent-sized position in Apple via our very large position in Berkshire Hathaway, so I've got exposure there. So no, I, I wouldn't knock the businesses. I'd be I'd be very acutely aware of regulation. And as they've now gotten more expensive, I'd be cautious about the prices that are being paid. I mean, if Apple were to simply revert back, and I don't think it will, or I couldn't make a case either way, but if it drops back from 35 times back to the 12 or 13 times, you know, you're talking almost a two-thirds decline in the multiple. And a business that's top line is its large business, not going to grow as fast as it has in you know during its its rollout of the ipad and the iphone and some of the other products that it has it's just the law of large numbers begins to take hold and when it does you can expect some multiple contraction as as the top line grows so great businesses but caution in terms of price but in my world price matters quite a bit absolutely if there's anything i've learned in our discussion so far today pay attention to price so if there's anything that, if there's one thing that you can take away from this interview today, I mean, there's, there's going to be a lot. I hope everybody's taking notes. I'm ta- I, I should be taking notes. I'm trying to listen intently, but I'll, I'll, I'll definitely be taking notes even after we do this. I mean, they, um, they, 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 a lot of, on that, there are a lot of ways to make money. I mean, I, I would be a terrible, I would be a terrible venture cap investor. I mean, you know, I've, I've, I need to have a sense of what a margin structure is going to look like. And, you know, the, the, you know, logical, shorter, intermediate term profitability of a firm. I had, I'd be no good at being a visionary and looking out 20 years trying to, you know, figure out whether a company is going to grow into a 25 multiple to sales and what the margins have to look like. I'm just, you know, the, the wary investor worried more about things that can go wrong than things that can go right. And for that, I, I don't, I don't, I don't have a lot of vision to that side of investing, but those that do, you know, bully, I mean, you know, there were a lot of people who made a lot of money owning small businesses as they got bigger and certainly, you know, venture business, they got bigger, but you know, on that scale, what's different there is, is the, is the ability to go public today with the exception of the SPACs, but you know, private businesses are staying private longer and they're much bigger when they right. come. And so, you know, you have that working against the public equity owner as well, but yeah, no long winded on Yeah. Price matters. Price matters right. a lot. That's right. All right. Well, here we got, we got, we have so many questions. I hope we're able to get through all these before we, uh, before you have, have to let, you. I don't know how much time we have left, but uh, I, we'll, we'll try and get through as many as these as possible. Um, you know, continuing on the Berkshire, uh, most of the questions that came in ha- have to do with Berkshire or, or Berkshire equivalent type questions, but this one is somewhat somber, but also a legit question um, from at Visage underscore one, you know, when Warren passes, uh, does he expect the stock to, do you expect the stock to dip for a bit until going back to its previous high and compounding as usual? <laughs> as much negative press and sentiment as Mr. Buffett gets these days, you know, you'd think the public question would be how much will the stock rise on the day that this lousy capital allocator is no longer at the helm. And I, I kid on that, but I don't think there's been a company where succession planning has been more deliberated, both internal to the business and external to the shareholder base and to the media as Berkshire has been. And you're going to get that with a company as successful as Berkshire has been, and I think continues to be with a management team that's, you know, the CEO's chairman's 90 years old and the vice chairman's 90, one of the, one of the now vice chairman's 97 years old. Um, 
I, I don't know what the stock's going to do when one of these guys and Mr. Buffett in particular gets hit by the proverbial bus. It's going to happen. You know, the, you know, the, the, unfortunately for, for those that have a high degree of affection for these two gentlemen that run Berkshire, you know, our time with them is, is growing shorter and shorter. And that just happens when you're 90 and 97. You know, I, th- I, I have, met, I can't tell you how many people I've met over the years who have said, well, I'm waiting for Berkshire to crash on the day Warren Buffett dies because this is a company that can't really exist without him. Well, that would have been an enormous mistake of uh, omission to not own the company at varying times to wait for that event. I think the I think the 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 succession plan in place, which is now formally disclosed, which isn't really a surprise to any of us that follow the company, with Greg Abel the heir apparent to fill the CEO role, but with Ajit still running the insurance operations, you've got the man, the two management guys underneath. I think they've done a very good job on succession planning with a lot of the material subs among the operating companies. So, you know, who knows what the stocks do in the short term. I would step back and say, you know, you've got a business that's generates $45 billion in profit as I measure profit. And there are a lot of accounting adjustments that I make. And if you're familiar with my letter, you know what those are. Um, you're paying today, what, the stock's 418, 19,000 on 1.51 million shares. So, you know, $630 billion market value on 45 billion. And you're paying a low teens multiple for earning power. Um, I, it doesn't matter. I think you know, what's, what's transpired in the last couple, two and a half years of, you know, Berkshire repurchasing shares is a very good sign in the world of competition for elephants with a lot of money sloshing around in private equity and a lot of money now sloshing around in SPACs that have to do deals with a two-year window. You're not going to get any deals. Um, you know, you didn't, you didn't have a deep enough downturn in the economy to be able to go you know, throw any bailout money at banks or brokerage firms like we had in 2008-09. You didn't get to pick up any pipeline pipeline assets for, from companies that were distressed. And so the acknowledgement that, that uh, the shares trading at, at present valuations are a very attractive use of capital is a great acknowledgement. I mean, here's, so I, I sent a little thing out a few, I don't know, a couple, three weeks ago, but, you know, it's interesting. There, there's so much discussion about Berkshire and its cash and what Mr. Buffett's doing with it. And, you know, maybe when he's gone, will we carve up the business? You know, there are those in the media that, that have been clamoring for a big dividend. Well, a big dividend is the last thing that I want, especially if we're going to raise tax policy to a 50% marginal rate for those with money. I mean, don't give me a dividend. Um, if you take Berkshire's cash, which is highly lamented, and Mr. Buffett gets a lot of fault for the cash that exists, well, that cash is a percentage of firm assets and as a percentage of the equity of the business has been pretty consistently in the range that it is right now since the Gen Redeal. It's a little high today, call it $135 billion, but relative to the $900 billion in firm assets, it's not that high. And so, you know, you've got $900 billion in assets, total for roughly, I'm just gonna round here, total firm assets, levered two to one against equity, so $450 billion in book value. Um, 45 billion in profitability as I measured. So that gets you to a 10 return on equity, which 
you know, with cash more than offsetting the debt that's used in the various subsidiaries of the business, there's net cash in the business, but it earns 10 on equity. If you took 100 billion of the cash just for ease of math and paid a dividend, pay a one-time special dividend, shed $100 billion from the cash balance, so take cash from 135, let's say, down to 100, take assets down from 900 to 800 billion, take equity down, you know, the other side of the ledger, down from 450 to $350 billion, simply take the, that much cash out of the business. All of a sudden, magically, your ROE becomes 13-ish, right? I mean, and, and when I do that math, you don't hold the 45 constant. I'm, this is way deep in the weeds, but of that $45 billion in firm profitability, I have long assumed that some portion of the cash will be kept permanent in the business. It was, it was you know, Mr. Buffett always said he'd keep, you know, 10 billion, 20 billion laying around. This year, he, he got kind of more in line with what my thinking has been in terms of, in terms of, saying that we've grown so much that number needs to be higher. I've always assumed they need to keep one years of insurance reserves, actual cash losses that are paid every year on hand, which is how I would run the business. And then you've got cash at the various subsidiaries. So there's four or so billion dollars between the railroad and the energy business. I think there's about $20 billion in the manufacturing service, retail finance businesses. So roughly half of that 135 billion in cash is probably permanently needed in the business, the operation, which again, on 900 billion in total assets is not that much. So, but on $70 billion of what I'd call investable cash that today is earning nothing in T-bills, I assume a 7% return. So my method there is I simply say, the optionality of Berkshire's cash is a 7% return, which is a discount from the deals that they will do at the moment they do them, but discounted for time, minus whatever they're earning in T-bills, which today is zero. So seven minus zero. A couple of years ago when interest rates were two, my seven would have subtracted two. So I would have had a 5% return on the optionality. At seven on 70 billion, you're 4.9 billion pre-tax. Ease of math, take $5 billion out of my $45 billion in profitability. So $40 billion on what would be now, not 450 billion in equity, but 350 billion in equity drives the ROE up. Again, I'm not, I don't think Berkshire ought to do this, but that would get the capital structure trending toward what the aggregate business in the stock market runs at. Businesses don't run with net cash on the balance sheet. The aggregate of the S&P 500 runs with just as much debt as they carry in equity in the capital structure, which means the returns on capital of the market are way below the returns on equity of the market. But, um, you know, you know those those are all thought experience. I know Greg Abel is really, in my mind, he's outstanding. What he had done inside the energy operations has been marvelous. He's got a firm grip. I know in the last couple of years, since he's been named vice chairman, he's spending a lot of his time with the CEOs and the managers of Berkshire's subsidiary companies, getting his mind around those companies. I wouldn't be surprised you know, perhaps not long after Mr. Buffett is gone. And you're going to see some of it here now. Some of these subsidiaries that were harmed badly by the pandemic or that were under earning are going to be shed, which is really not the Berkshire style, but they will sell off some operations. Hell, they've closed the textile business years ago. They closed diversified retailing. Uh, you know, you know they've, 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 they've realized when they're not earning adequate returns that, you know, as as true as we are to being permanent type holders of capital, they will do the right thing. They sold 
the newspaper operations to Lee Enterprises a couple of years ago, yeah. and they took back some real estate and, you know, it's an interesting transaction, but I think you could see some of that. Uh, I don't think the share price ought to decline because you do some of the parts or all the methods that I use to value the business. And on a 10 ROE at 135, 140% of book, or if you adjust for the cash, as I just did, you know, a 13 multiple on, on equity, the stock's just too cheap. And so, you know, it doesn't have the accounting abuses that we talked about. You're giving away no stock options. You're giving away no restricted shares. You don't have a big history of write-offs and write-downs. You saw a write-down of precision cast parts this year of about $10 billion. But outside of that, you don't have a long history. So you have a clean place. And if we're going to have a world of very high tax rates, I mean, suppose Mr. Buffett dropped dead today and in the midst of all this, we change the marginal rate on individual investors up to a 50% tax for those that have money. Again, the last thing you want is a dividend. The, the I mean, you, you want the capital allocation uh, that's taking place today to continue and, and persist. And I think it will persist. I think it can persist for a long time. The most important aspect of, of Mr. Buffett and Mr. Munger being gone is preservation of culture. Um, you saw the activists, which we've seen over all the years at the annual meeting, Berkshire is such a well-known entity and it's meeting is such a public, um, a public thing, a public spectacle that varying uh, interest, special interest groups have, have, have lobbied and, and used the proxy process of trying to lobby for change. This year, Berkshire had to defend its climate policies. They had to defend the age of some of its directors, which is insanity. You've got these folks with cumulative years of experience that went unrivaled, the ability to call some of these guys on the board and pick their brain over deals and what they're seeing in media and elsewhere. You just don't have that. Um, but, you know, Berkshire does a lot of good and they'll, they'll have a lot more pressure. You think they have pressure from the outside now and from the proxy voting services and from Larry Fink and from CalPERS and what have you. We'll just wait till Mr. Buffett's gone and Greg and the board have to have to defend the Berkshire culture from a lot of the insanity that's coming at them. So, 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 so they're going to have to, I think, kind of, create some continuity with the board and bring in people that will allow this culture to persist as long as it can. Charlie, Mr. Munger has long talked about Berkshire's culture can last a lot longer than people think it can. And I think it can, but you've got to have those on board that are willing to defend it. Um, and so when Mr. Buffett goes, there are CEOs of some of the subs that like being around because, you know, they like working for and with a guy that, you know, you know, a guy like Warren Buffett with the track record that he has and, you know, the, the personality that he has. And, you know, a lot of those old guys have been retiring off or in some cases, sadly passing away. So you, you'll have, you'll have some operational changes. Some of the old guard will move on. The board will turn over and you've got four guys in their nineties um, there uh, outside of Warren and Charlie, I believe. Maybe it's three. I think about anyhow, you, you're going to have some change, but I think it's a culture that persists. And so, you know, if the stock is is undervalued today, despite being up 20% for the year, if you were to get a big sell-off and you had cash laying around, use the use any sell-off that might happen as a transitory thing, which is the buzzword today, to take advantage of a decline of the stock price. Because, you know, making 10 plus percent a year for the next 10 to 15 years 
with the way they operate the business and without a lot of the nonsense that takes place at the periphery is pretty attractive in a world where the overall stock market is pretty darn expensive. Great answer there. I no retort. I, I mean, the, the, that was great. So, all right, Chris, real quick, how much time do we have left? I, I'm in good shape. My, uh, my dog has not gone nuts. My mower is, yeah, everything. We've done we haven't thing. had too, we, we haven't had too many visitors. This is this is good so far. So let, let's keep the train going. All right. So next question that came in was from at Panda Value. Um, uh, they ask uh, ask about uh, Bill Brewster's argument that uh, Berkshire should shift to a growth equity mindset. Now I think you might be a guest on there at some point. So however much you want to get into it now before you're on there and you, and you guys can go into it a bit further. But you know. It's a good question. Uh, Bill's awesome. He's a he's great. I, 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 I have not heard, I have not heard this argument of his that Berkshire ought to be a, would you say, a growth equity operation? Uh, growth equity mindset. They should a shift gro- to a growth equity mindset. Gosh, I don't even know what what a growth equity mindset really means. I mean, <laughs> price and value and growth. It's all kind of part of the formula. Um, I, uh, I don't know. I mean, in terms of shifting, I, I wouldn't shift gears. I don't think there's much that Berkshire can or should do outside of present policy, but maybe when I, when, and I am going to do Bill's pod, we've been, you know, talking about doing it and trying to get a date on the calendar. And I'm looking forward to that. He's a great guy. He's a good friend. Um, maybe I'll have to hash that out with him because I'm not exactly sure what, 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 what angle he's taking on Berkshire being a shifting to a growth equity. I mean, Look, at Panda Value, you're going to have to tune into that, man. I'm sorry. You know, I'm sorry. We'll, we'll, I'm, I'm sure there'll be a better answer on that pod. And I'm very excited. I love Bill's show. I think, I think he's doing some really great. Sorry, work. sorry to have failed you, Panda. <laughs> nah, you won't, you won't in the future. Don't worry. That, that, uh, that'll be good. All right. Next question comes from at Doug Moan. What's up, Doug? I haven't talked to Doug in a while. Here we go. It's a good question. So, uh, do you think, uh, Webb will keep so much cash around for elephant hunting should substantial inflation persist. Besides buybacks, what might be likely alternatives? Yeah, well, I, th- that's a good question. You know, I touched on the cash probably you know, more in depth than some would want to hear. I think, again, in perspective, the cash balance is not that great relative to the whole. You saw repurchases last year of almost $25 billion. And on my $45 billion in profits, well, that includes my $5 billion of optionality of cash being invested at some point. There's another $10 plus billion, what you'd call the retained earnings of the common stock investees of the insurance operations, right? So, you know, the, the profits that Coke retains and Apple retains that they don't pay as dividends. Well, that's, you know, 10, almost $11 billion of you know, the total. So, you know, pushing a quarter, um, you know, they've got almost $5 billion in dividends coming in from those public companies. So you strip out some of those moving, well, the, the, the dividends would come in as cash. I mean, essentially you've got simply taking out the retained earnings and the optionality of the cash. You've got, um, um, you know, 25, let's call it billion dollars of, what you'd call operating income among the subsidiary companies, and then add in the dividends that come in from the stock portfolio. Well, they spent that much money last year. Um, They were actually running at a higher cadence in terms of share repurchases 
uh, up until late uh, last year and early this year when the cadences dropped off to about six and a half billion dollars a quarter. Well, that gets you to you know, $25 billion on an annual basis, which is about the operating earnings of the company. So net net the cash balance, holding portfolio activity constant and holding any big acquisitions constant. The cash balance will stay fairly constant at this level of share repurchases. You look at what's happening across the business, but what has really been concentrated in the railroad and then the utility and energy businesses. For the better part of the last 10 plus years, Berkshire's been spending CapEx at twice the rate of stated depreciation expense. So every dollar of depreciation expense within the Berkshire companies really is um, a real expense. It's capital intensive businesses. So, you know, your maintenance CapEx numbers are at least call it $7 billion. But they're spending $15 billion in CapEx. So you've got seven plus almost $8 billion in somewhere close to that number in what you'd call growth CapEx. At the railroad, um, depreciation was half of CapEx for a bunch of years, and that that cadence has tapered off in the last couple, three years. Um, I think there's only so much you can do with the infrastructure of the railroad. They had built out a number of tracks and, and corridors. They'd blown out tunnels, and they you know created the ability to double stack um, 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 trains uh, for intermodal. And, and a lot of that's run its course. And so, so the, the, uh, the level of CapEx has come down to where it's now maybe 50% more than depreciation expense at the rail. But in the utility operations and Greg Abel and Mr. Buffett got into it this year's annual meeting. And you know we've been following this for a lot of years. The ability for Berkshire's utility operations and energy businesses to spend and build growth assets is pretty remarkable. Um, spending a lot of money building out the energy grid in the West, you know, you're building and spending a lot of money in Iowa and in the West on, on wind energy and, and now in solar. Well, those are widely distributed assets. You know, it's not the cold, the coal plant of old that would sit on the periphery of an urban center. These are highly geographical, graphically distributed assets that need to be connected, you know, to the grid. And uh, Berkshire spending an enormous amount of money over time. Um, you know, building out those assets. And so that that's a long-lived, that's a long-lived way to do that. I mean, you think about the typical utility that, you know, has a retail investor base that lives on dividend income, or 80% of profits, let's say, gets paid out as dividends. So to the extent you need to grow and 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 spend CapEx north of just status, you've got to borrow money, you've got to raise stock in the capital market. You've got to sell sell shares in the capital market. Berkshire has never paid a dollar of profit of dividends back to the parent out of the energy operations. To the contrary, the you, the railroad has sent almost all of its profitability up to the parent. And so Berkshire's rail operation has augmented its spending with what I think is an adequate amount of leverage, as has the utility operations. You know, in utilities, the regulators like to see, you know, the capital structure with debt to equity between 40, 60, 60, 40, Berkshire's pushing on the high side of that. So, you know, running at about 60% debt. So to the extent the utility operations, which do about 20 billion in revenues and generate on the order of $4 billion in profit, every dollar of that $4 billion in profit is retained. It is spent on growth CapEx and they can augment that spending with, you know, another four plus billion dollars in debt capital. So that's how you get to, 
you know, spending these larger sums on growth capital projects that can persist for a long time. We have public policy in place that's, you know, advantaging companies like Berkshire and companies being willing to spend on solar and wind. Um, you know, Berkshire's tax rate at the utility operations is negative. They're actually net receiving cash from the federal government, which is remarkable. But that's where public policy is taking us. And, you know, these projects are going to run for a long, long time. We're going to get dislocations from some of these projects. You saw in Texas this year with the freeze, they didn't have enough backup power. Berkshire's got a proposal in place to supply some backup power with natural gas. California can't close Diablo Canyon and get out of nuclear. And they can't say we're not going to allow gas-fired plants going forward. We're only going to have wind and solar in our grid because those are intermittent supplies of power. You have to have backup natural gas to fire the grid at all times. And if we're gonna grow the population of the country, you're not gonna get away from oil and gas anytime soon. You're not gonna get away from uh, natural gas generated power. Uh, we're certainly gonna get away from coal and Berkshire's been doing that. They made it very clear on that climate issue with the activists this year, that they were the only electric utility of all the electrics in the country to sign on to the Paris Climate Accord. Um, they've reduced the coal footprint by half. They've conforming, they, you know, they're ahead of target on conforming to Paris. Uh, we'll continue to do so. So coal's going away and you've got to replace coal with something and we're going to do more wind and solar, but wind and solar right now are teeny tiny here and globally. And so, you know, Berkshire's going to benefit from that in a big way. And so, uh, the ability, you know, I wish, I, you know, I think I wish there were a way and maybe there is a way to even accelerate the spending there. They bought a bunch of assets from Dominion, you know, some of which just got turned down. They can't, they can't finish the last part of that deal for some antitrust, but they bought a bunch of assets from Dominion on the East Coast, pipeline distribution assets, an LNG terminal, some midstream assets. It, 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 it's a great use of capital. I mean, between sherry purchases, as long as the share price kind of is in this range of what I consider to be pretty cheap, and way under what I would call intrinsic value. Between that and CapEx, those are great uses of capital. And I don't mind that there aren't any elephants out there. You know, let the SPAC guys go get the deals and pay ridiculous multiples. Eventually, you're going to blow some of that stuff up, and you're going to get the opportunity at some point to, to buy big deals. But you know, Berkshire's universe for elephants is pretty small. I mean, you know, to, to move the needle on, you know, 100 plus billion in cash and 900 billion in assets, you've got to do big deals. And in today's climate, with all the competition for capital, you're not getting any deals. But they have, you know, thank goodness, um, they have places to spend money, and they have places to spend money on a very creative basis, which is, which is terrific. And I, I, I think I'm going to title this uh, episode the, the Berkshire Masterclass. You know, I don't think I've, I don't think I've ever talked to anybody that knows Berkshire as well as you. You know, despite it being as, so as multifaceted as it is, you know, in various. Well, well, you, well, don't do that. I I talked to I was on with Stig Broderson. Uh, he called the masterclass. <laughs> I think he called our talk something along the lines of Berkshire Masterclass or something. So. No, Stig, damn it! All right, we'll have to call. We have some cop copyright or trade. <laughs> All right, I'll come up with something else. Well, here's a, you know, speaking of uh, of Berkshire, you know. I have another Berkshire question for you. This comes from at Phillips Relic. And he wants, he, he would love to hear your thoughts or, or they, I'm not sure if it's he or she, but they, they would love to hear your thoughts on the various baby Berkshires, especially Fairfax. Do you have, a, do you have any thoughts on those? Um, I, I do. 
uh, you know, I think in the world of property casualty insurance, but certainly reinsurance, there's only one Berkshire. Um, you, you take the reinsurance side of the ledger within Berkshire, you know, Berkshire, Berkshire's whole insurance operations will write north of $60 billion in premium, 20 billion uh, of that is in kind of their specialty businesses, the home state businesses, um, you know, Geico, Geico writes three, do, can write $3 a premium for every dollar of capital. Um, you know, they're writing over $20 billion this year. It only needs $7 billion of capital. Well, Berkshire's total statutory capital, which is a number you see in the, in the footnotes of the annual every year is north of $220 billion right now. So, you know, stretching Geico's need for capital to 20 billion, stretching, um, you know, the specialty businesses um, to another $20 billion, you know, you kind of leave almost $200 billion in, in capital for Berkshire's reinsurance operations. And that would be national indemnity and uh, general reinsurance that's all now branded under the Berkshire Hathaway reinsurance umbrella. Well, they write 10% of capital as annual premium. The industry writes way, way more. I mean, there's about $600 billion in global reinsurance capital extant. If you throw in insurance linked securities and cat bonds and what have you, you can get to maybe $800 billion. But of, of the core reinsurance capital, you've got about $600 billion. Berkshire is a third, a third of global reinsurance capital and they write less than call it 10% of annual premium. It's the only place that can invest the majority of its reserves in common stocks. I mean, you have an 18 or $19 billion bond portfolio. You've got 60 plus billion, maybe $65 billion of Berkshire's cash is in the insurance operations. So between the fixed, fixed income and the cash, maybe $80 billion of the, uh, you know, 200 plus billion dollars in equity of the business. Nobody else, Fairfax, Markel, you can't write, you can't own that degree of common stocks. And, you know, if you think in a world of zero interest rates and very low yields on fixed income and cash, if we're gonna have high levels of inflation and that translates maybe even into hyperinflation at some point, who knows, You know, we can have a long macro conversation sometime. Um, the ability to own common stocks at earnings yields of you know, six, 7% as Berkshire does is such an enormous benefit that, that there's no other. I mean, if I'm gonna own a reinsurance operation, generally speaking, I would own a, I would own Berkshire um, because, you know, 45% of the value of Berkshire is still reinsurance. I, I, I'm a huge fan of Weston Hicks at Allegheny. Um, you know, if you don't read his annual letters, everybody out there, you should. I mean, he writes by far the, you know, I think, I think better now than Mr. Buffett's letters. Mr. Buffett's letters for years were teaching tools at 90. He's given the information you need and uh, he's just not teaching as much as he used to. And that's fine. You, you, he's, he's done it for so long that, you know, if you, if you, if you're, if you're a guy that's going to knock Mr. Buffett on social media versus sitting, taking the time to read through the history of the archive of the letters and, you know, listen on your headphones to Warren and Charlie talk about, um, you know, all the various 
uh, things they talk about at the annual meeting, then you're missing out. Um, but Weston writes a great letter. Anyhow, Allegheny just got really cheap last year. They're very good insurance operation. They've assembled in a very fairly short period of time, a very good insurance operation, but still, you know, heavily dependent on the bond market. They've got some private investments as Markel does. And I think Allegheny does a very good job with, with, with some of the businesses that they bought. So, it, it, but it was trading at a big discount to book value and we've made a bunch of money on it so far. But, you know, in terms of, in terms of kind of like to like, there are no apples to compare against Berkshire. I mean, it's a lot of fruits, but you know, nothing that's, that's on par with owning that operation. It's, it's the only one that's can durably, I think, withstand the vagaries of, of really bad economies and, you know, kind of misguided central bank policies um, because of the fortress nature of the balance sheet. There's just so much surplus capital, which has allowed Berkshire to grow outside of its core insurance operations over time. I mean, the, 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 the railroad wouldn't exist. The utilities wouldn't exist. Everything outside of insurance wouldn't exist had it not been for the way Berkshire has operated the reinsurance business over time. And, you know, kept surplus levels of capital inside the insurers, but then diverted capital to everything else. There are a lot of people that have tried to do it. You know, some of these newer reinsurers and, you know, getting into cap bonds, The again, the insurance link securities have not proven to be very good places to do it. A lot of people have tried. You've got some hedge funds that have started reinsurance operations. And I think everybody says, well, I can go get this float. I mean, the whole key to getting rich is float. I want to be able to leverage my capital. Well, I've had a working premise for the better part of the last 20 years that the stock market itself has rarely been cheap. It got cheap in 2009. You know, why in the world of what are now very nascent low interest rates, why in the world do you want to be in the insurance game? It's hard. The aggregate insurer loses money. It's not a very good business. You know, you've got Geico and Progressive that are, you know, sitting at the top of the auto insurance game. People think that Tesla is going to come into that game. Well, I'd bet a dollar to a donut that Tesla will never, never have an underwriting operation. And if they did, simply to subsidize what's a very expensive level of, of auto premium, because their cars are expensive to insure, they get in more accidents. Um, they're very expensive to replace and repair. Their service centers are, are widely distributed, or they're not widely distributed. Um, but auto insurance is tough, you know the average auto insurer writes at a, you know, underwriting break even to a one or 2% underwriting loss over time. It's a hard game. Reinsurance is a hard game. So, um, you know, uh, you know, I think the, the folks running uh, Fairfax are great. I don't know why the, they, you know, they, they had the big hedge on on the stock portfolio forever. And, you know, that cost them a mountain of money. And I think not misguided, I think concerns about things like central banking, but I'm kind of happy with the ones that I own. Um, and, you know, there, there are some very bright, accomplished people out there, but it's a harder game than I think you want to be in. And this is not a very good climate to be in the insurance game. It's really not. It's pretty, you know, it's, it's a funny question. And it's actually a very good question that, that, that at Relic asks, you know, or at Phillips Relic asks. And, and it's funny just because I think back to quite a few of the CEO interviews I've done over the years with some microcaps that are, you know, Oh yeah, we're Berkshire model. You know, we have the, the conglomerate. You know, holding company. Yeah, no, we're we're baby Berkshire. So it's it's quite fascinating when you know it's just it's just brandied about so willy nilly without you know like maybe give it some more thought before you just call yourself a baby Berkshire and just say oh we're doing that model. It's a bit more common. But uh, what do you mean? Uh, 
I mean, I don't, you know, Mr. Buffett didn't buy the textile operation with the intent of being a conglomerate. Yeah, right. it, was a, it was a stub asset that was still undervalued when he was winding down, you know, thinking about winding down his partnerships. And when he did, he kept the stock and, you know, only for the pivot to national indemnity and getting into the insurance game. Um, did that really give him a platform to then really divert capital into the stock market, which really was the bread and butter of Berkshire for the first 30 plus years, 35 years. It was, it was the ability of not only a master stock picker who didn't buy a lot of, I mean, it was a very concentrated portfolio. And you look at, at, at the returns of the individual securities that Mr. Buffett bought over time, ignoring the leverage, the nominal leverage that you get from the way insurance reserving and float works. I mean, his stock picking was really, really good for a long time. And then you augment that with the ability to run on a bit of a levered basis because you operate a conservative insurance platform the ability to augment those returns during, um, you know, ultimately by the time you got through the 73, 74 bear market and, you know, then to the 1981 low, it was a great period of time to be a stock investor period. And to have that guy running the concentrated stock portfolio that he did inside of the insurance operations was great, but didn't mean to be a conglomerate. I don't think really necessarily meant to own the you know widely distributed insurance operations you know these things just happened as opportunities presented themselves and it became a conglomerate but i don't think that was the motivation you know he said owning owning the investments that we have inside of a c-corp structure has you know really ultimately cost us a, a mountain of money um i also think it also gave him permanent capital i mean you know he owned it and they they, have, they they paid one ten cent per share dividend back in 1967, I think it was. But outside of that, they've never paid a dividend. So, the ability to retain all that capital over time. But you had tailwinds. You had tailwinds in terms of economic output, real growth in GDP per capita, that was you know growing at two and a half percent, three percent a year for the better part of you know that that period of time up until 2000. You know 98, 99, 2000. Since then, we've had headwinds galore, and it's it's been tough. But I think they've done an adequate job with them since then. But man, just just to say, if I could only get that structure in place, it would be easy. No, it's not. There there are really hard places to do it. I wouldn't I wouldn't dream to want to have that corporate structure um, right. un, un, under my guidance. Right. All right. Here's the next question. This is actually this one. This one's not so much a question, but uh, uh, it's a request to get you going. Uh, this is from at miser one nine one, and uh, their request is get get you going on some Austrian school econ philosophy, please, with an emoji with a cowboy hat on it. So, uh, how how would you like to get going on Austrian school of uh, economics philosophy? Well, Let, let's do the whole course. We got another four hours, right? What, what's the big deal? What's the big deal? Uh, I, I had a chance to stop off in Auburn, Alabama, and and um, spend time with the folks at the Mises Institute earlier this year. And wonderful um, experience that was. Um, Austrian economics are not taught widely or at all on, in in on college campuses. Um, but, you know, I think, I think the, you know, the, the guiding principles of kind of letting the market dictate outcome, um, makes sense to me. It resonates with me. We have done nothing, nothing along the lines of, of, of prudence 
really for the last 30 plus, almost 40 years. You know, under the Greenspan watch, we had a stock market crash in 87 and the Federal Reserve was interventionist then with monetary policy. They moved interest rates down. Um, you know, they stimulated after the savings and loan crisis. We had the 08, or we, we, had the, we, had, we had a nasty recession in 2000 and the bear market that took the NASDAQ down 80%. You had a very interventionist Fed then that took rates way down and held them there for a long time, which led to the housing bubble. Obviously, the financial crisis. You had, if you take the Fed's balance sheet, and I've got this, I've got a work up on this in my letter this year. You know, I, I run around with this mental model of, of kind of how big the Fed is versus the economy and how big the stock market is versus the economy and you know, these inner workings. If you go back to 2000, the market peak in 2000. Um, you had about a $10 trillion economy. Um, you had debt at that time that was total credit market debt was 250% of GDP. So $25 trillion in debt. And that's household debt combined with corporate debt combined with government debt. Never been higher. Exceeded where we were in World War II. Exceeded where we were in the late 1920s. And I thought, wow, that's quite a bit. Um, and that was really the point where government debt, which was nowhere near what it is today, but had elevated itself up to very high levels where it started to fall under what you'd call kind of the, the, the lack of ability to grow GDP um, with, any, with any degree of multiplier effect. You got somewhat of a law of diminishing returns. Well, so you had the recession in 02, and then you get to 07 before the financial crisis. And in that seven years from 2000, we had grown the economy by $4 trillion, 10 to $14 trillion. But over that seven years, total credit market debt had doubled from 25 to $50 trillion. It took $25 trillion of new debt to grow the economy by four. And you had the financial crisis, of course. But at that point, debt was 350% of GDP. And the Fed took its balance sheet, which was about $850 billion in 07, and ran it up to $4.5 trillion. About a trillion and a half took place during the financial crisis. And then coming out of that crisis, we kept interest rates very low for a very long period of time and also introduced various iterations of QE. We did the first QE during the crisis, but we had three full iterations that ran through 2000 and let's say 17. And at that point, they started to try to taper. Uh, again, the balance sheet got as high, the Fed's balance sheet of four, four and a half trillion dollars. And they began to stop um, net buying treasuries and mortgages. And they started to run off the portfolio. They weren't selling any securities. But when a treasury that they own matured, they simply wouldn't roll and rebuy a new treasury. And that kind of forced the market, the private market to then pick that up because the government was not going to not run big budget deficits. I mean, going into 2020, they were going to run a trillion dollar deficit, which was almost 5% of GDP. So we have nobody in Washington on either side of the political aisle that have any degree of prudence and any degree of austerity and belt tightening and living within our means. We just don't do that anymore. An Austrian would say, when we have a recession, it ought to run its course. And you ought to let an overbuilt credit stock um, work its way off. And you ought to let, you know, allow the creditors to become the equity owners, wipe out the equity owner. And if you would have done that back in the 80s and 90s and allowed a garden variety recession to run its course, then you wouldn't be where we are. But they've never done that. We've never gone down the austerity path. 
So here we are today on a GDP that's grown since 07 from, let's say, 14 trillion up to what's going to be 22 trillion. It was 21 trillion last year because GDP shrank in nominal terms. So you added $7 trillion from, from 2007 to 2020. Um, we maintained that 350% debt to GDP level. So we're debt once we got into the pandemic and we ran a $3.1 trillion deficit last year, ballooned credit market debt up to 400% of GDP. And now the Fed's got an eight plus trillion dollar balance sheet. The monetary base from the beginning of 2020 is up on the order of 80%. M2 is up by half that. Um, and so, you know, the folks that are running around saying, well, look at this growth in the money supply. This has to be inflationary. And surely this, this increase in housing prices and all the tightness we have today, this is the inflation that's now the byproduct of growing the money supply. Not really, because the monetary base has grown twice as half as the money supply. And so what's happened is the Fed has become the buyer of last resort of these enormous budget deficits. We're going to run another enormous budget deficit this year. And a lot of that net treasury issuance has found its way onto the balance sheet of the Fed via the dealer, dealer system. So the banks who sit there with, uh, you know, having sold the treasuries to the Fed, they don't have use for loans. There's, there's not net loan demand in our system. And so bank reserves are pushing $3.8 trillion today. That, that is, it's just sitting there unlent and it's not making its way into the economy. And so for that, you know, if you've got the monetary base, which really is just bank reserves of 3.8 trillion and, and, and currency of over $2 trillion combined, the monetary base is about $6 trillion. You know, the monetary base is, is now you know, a third, let's say, um, you know, a quarter, between a third and a quarter of what GDP is going to wind up being. It's way bigger in places like Japan. But because the money supply has grown by half as much, what's happened is the money multiplier, which is simply the monetary base times the multiplier, little m gets you to M2. Well, M2 times money velocity is GDP. Both the, mon the, the, the money multiplier and the money velocity, which are not the same thing, but, you know, highly correlated. Money is not making its way through the system. The velocity of money has come down from early in my career was always around two. It's barely over one. You have M2 that's running today, I don't know if GDP is 22 trillion. You know, you're pushing $20 trillion in M2. And so money's not making its way into the system. So the banking system is kind of stuck. There's no net loan demand. There's a lot of off-balance sheet kind of you know, the, 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 the hedge fund world, levered, levered loan world that exists in private equity outside of the banking system. You know, you do have a lot of debt that exists there. Um, but, you know, we just don't have economic growth. And so my belief is holding hyperinflation aside, holding uh, a deep um, recession aside, the inflation that we have today is probably not durable. Um, supply chains are broken. We have people that are sitting at home. My lawn guy who can't staff, nobody wants to work. That'll all fix it, fix, fix, fix itself. Um, but none of this federal spending, none of this three and a half trillion dollars in infrastructure spending will have any durable impact positively on the economy. You'll get short-term bumps and pops. And certainly the infrastructure spending is the most high powered money. But when debt is at 
when federal debt is pushing 140% of GDP, it's not stimulative. There's actually a negative multiplier effect to it. And so, I mean, the Austrians would be rolling over in their graves at this point um, on policy. And we're so far gone down the path. How do you walk that back? And the problem is, if we say as a matter of public policy, well, let's shrink. And now we have too much leverage. We have to, at some point, allow a normal term, term structure of interest rates to exist. You can't have 0% short-term rates forever. Well, if you have $85 trillion in debt in the system, and the economy is $22 trillion here in the U.S. alone, if you take interest rates back to where they were 10 years ago, 15 years ago, and you have 5% short rates and 7% long rates, do the math. But the interest burden starts to become the whole economy. You can't do it. So the best course of action would be, well, let's have, you know, austerity and let's just tighten our belts and live within our means. Again, nobody in Washington is going to do that. And so what, what I'm struggling with is what does the end game look like on the other side of that? And that's where you start worrying about not the inflation that we see today because of tightnesses, pent up demand. Again, the CPI print this week of 5.4%. If you look at it on a linear basis back to 19, it's only 3%. So maybe one and a half percent a year you're up against negative comps. A lot of these metrics are year over year, and we were in the middle of the pandemic last year, so it looks like there's a lot of tightness. But the millennials have come out of their parents' basements. There is pent-up demand for homes. You don't have a big supply of, of, of new homes being built. And so there is a tightness in various markets. There's a tightness in used cars. But that'll all fix itself. A lot of it will fix itself. In places like energy, not necessarily, because public policy is going to disallow a lot of spending on capital uh, to build the energy infrastructure and the energy resources that we need. And so there'll be some wicked law, so, you know, you know, results, uh, unintended consequences, third and, you know, second and third order uh, effects of, of public policy um, where we get some tightnesses in places. I mean, you do the math on trying to get to EVs being 80% of the global auto, auto market. Well, the raw materials that are required the raw materials that are required to do solar and wind. I mean, you've got to have a lot of copper. You're going to have to you're going to have to burn a lot of coal to generate the temperatures required to make microprocessors to make the solar panels that exist in solar. So a lot of that nonsense will happen. But you know, broadly speaking, from an Austrian perspective, I'm not sure. You know, an Austrian. If I were an Austrian, I would say if they said, "Chris, we're going to make you the president of or, you know the head of the Federal Reserve," what would you do? I mean, I'd resign because. You wouldn't like the you wouldn't like the policy, but the, the the proper policy directives should have been taken place thirty plus years ago, and we didn't do that. And I don't know what you do with a system that has four hundred plus percent debt to the economy, but you're not going to get durable long term growth, and we're all going to have to deal with that. And I don't know what the other side of it looks like, but as an allocator of capital and an investor in business, I'm very cognizant of what the end game could look like. And I'm very, very careful about the types of assets that I'm willing to own today, because I think these tales of what could go wrong are more likely to go wrong. Those tales of the distribution curve are fattened. And so, um, you know, where in the world of micro cap investing and small cap investing, you know, the best course of action has always been to put your head in the sand and ignore the macro. You've heard Mr. Buffett, Mr. Munger talk about that forever, but I don't think in today's climate, you can afford to ignore the macro because we have pushed the bounds of, 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 of where we ought be. And it's concerning to me because you know, I'm going to have to deal with this during my tenure in my lifetime, my tenure as a capital allocator and my lifetime as an investor. Um, and what, you know, kind of, kind of what the economic climate looks like 
coming out of what is this boom today? What does it look like at the end of this year and into 2022? So you better have a lens that's willing to look from 2019 to 2022 and ignore some of the short-term noise where you had a big V down and now a giant V up because on a linear basis, we don't have a lot and we won't have a lot of durable top-line growth. So going on that, I mean, what what have been some of the scenarios that you think about when it come, when you when you think about going on the, not necessarily the end game, but on the other side of all this, like what, what are some of the scenarios that you see? Well, you know, you have, you have people that are rightly concerned about all of this, whether it be it from an Austrian perspective or not. I think the reason you can get this cryptocurrency craze that you have, I think, you know, the logic for it is there because people know that the central banks globally here and in Europe and in Japan, China, have gone off the reservation. They've pushed the bounds of where we ought to be. People are worried about fiat, rightfully so. And so in that context, you know, I get it. Um, I happen to think that, you know, you go through all that that Federal Reserve balance sheet math, you know, monetary policy is 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 introduced into the economy via the fractional reserve lending system, levered lending in the banking system. And in that setting, central banks will never relinquish control of the currency. They will never allow a competing currency. And you know, for that, I don't hold a lot of stock uh, in you know the viability of a Bitcoin. And you have the central bankers, you know, globally and here talking about introducing digital currencies, central bank dig- digital currencies. That to me is probably the thing worth watching. Um, in that, you know, if you've got cash in your pocket right now and, you know, inflation is 2%, you're bleeding 2%. You know, classically, historically, short-term treasury rates have mimicked the inflation rate. So if inflation's running two and a half, T-bill rates ought to be two and a half. That's kind of been the history of capital. Well, suppressing rates at zero is just robbing the saver class of their wealth. And so... You know, we're trying to introduce inflation into the system because what the central bankers, I think, fear most would be what you would fear most if you ran a company that had too much debt and your top line was shrinking. Financial leverage introduces operational leverage and declining profitability magnified by a small decline in the top line magnified on the bottom line. The economy is no different. And when you shrink your top line, when nominal GDP declines, uh, it gets problematic when you've got debt that's now, like I say, 400% of GDP. So public policy, central bank policy is going to try to introduce inflation. Well, the Japanese have been trying to introduce inflation since 1989. They had a boom. They boomed after World War II. Uh, the economy thrived. And you had a bubble in the stock market. Stocks traded at 80 to 100 times earnings. GDP in U.S. terms was $5 trillion. Today, it's $5 trillion. Their economy has not grown since 1989. And they've introduced, were early adopters of QE and negative interest rates. They've done all of these things that are now being utilized as the playbook of central banks in Europe and here in the States. In that context, um, you know, I don't know how it ends, um, but I think if you have a digital currency and they say the dollars in your pocket are no longer viable, 
Right now we have $2.2 trillion in currency in existence. And if they say these are all now going to be digital under the guise of, you know, we have a discriminatory lending system. Um, We have the unbanked representing some percentage of the population. We need a mechanism to get cash to people in need. And when the Fed says we're going to do that with digital dollars and every individual social security number or taxpayer ID number is going to have an account at the Federal Reserve, and all of a sudden the cash in your pocket cannot be spent because we've required you down a digital path, then you can set the marginal interest rate at a negative level. And that, that's the transmission mechanism for the Federal Reserve, the central banks effectively paying the bills of the federal government, if you will. It's setting the rate at negative five percent. Well, if the rate's negative five percent, you're going to find something else to do with your money. If you're living in Venezuela, if you're living in Argentina now, is heading down the path of another hyperinflation. You know, Brazil has done it multiple times with multiple currencies. You get paid on Friday, you run to the bank because the price of a loaf of bread is going to be higher on Monday. Hyperinflation is the citizenry not wanting to own the fiat currency of the local country. Well, in most hyperinflations throughout time, there's been somewhere to go with your money. You could leave Argentina if you figured it out early enough and get to the United States or get to Switzerland. Then eventually you get capital controls and you're stuck. And that's why so many South Americans own land and cattle, because they've seen the currency go to zero. They've seen the value of bonds go to zero. So you want tangible assets. My answer is you better own businesses with purchasing power that regardless of the inflationary climate, whether it's deeply deflationary, which is the natural bias of an overlevered capital stock, and an overlevel economy is to have deflation, is to work down debt. Central bankers are going to fight like hell to offset it. And if we ultimately have hyperinflation, not in an isolated within the United States sense, but in the broad global industrial economy, you got to own the right kind of assets. And again, if the government can make gold illegal to own in the 1930s for a period of decades, they can sure as hell say we're not going to tolerate a competing fiat currency. Um, but it wasn't a Bitcoin question, and and I don't really have a good Bitcoin answer. And, and that's not a crypto, it wasn't meant to be a crypto answer, but you better think about preservation of capital. I mean, the horse race that is, stocks against the S&P 500, that's all fine and good. But I would, I'd be way more concerned about preservation of wealth and the generation of durable earning power and find those pockets of places that can withstand the vagaries of what's coming at us from what's what's very extreme, misguided, in my opinion, social and 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 central bank policy. All right, Chris, I got three more questions from Twitter. How, what do you think? Do we still have steam? Yeah, we're in good shape. Yeah, I'm in okay. good shape. All right. <laughs> Dude, you're the man. This is this is just so epic. I, and I'm really thankful to everybody that submitted questions because I, I'll tell you. I don't think I could have asked better questions than, than some of these questions that came in. And, and, and Chris, again, thank you so much for, for taking the time to answer some of these. These are, these are really quite fun. Um, uh, so this one comes in from at Rob McKenzie. Uh, Rob, big fan of the show. Thank you always for listening, Rob. Good to see you. Good to hear from you. Um, he writes in, uh, what became of Wesco Financial Corp and all of its parts after Berkshire uh, fully acquired it in 2011. Oh, uh, you know, Wesco was originally a savings and loan. Um, and they wound up owning, they had a steel processing operation. I don't know. There's, I, I don't want to get into the deal. I mean, you know, they, they want, they wound up, they wound up effectively, um, 
buying the business back. There was a family involved in owning it, but uh, I, I don't want to do I don't want to do the nuances of that deal here. Gotcha. All right, we'll leave we'll leave it there. All Rob, right, I'll so, you, Rob, I'll talk to you offline about it sometime. Very cool. Very I recommend cool. Rob, Rob. Yeah, yeah, Rob, you you heard from here. He'll talk to you offline. All right. Well, then uh, next question that came in um, <laughs> um, at Crypto Scarred uh, comes in and says, uh, "Have you ever had a call with Kathy Woods? And and uh, if if you whether you have or have not, you know what would you tell her?" Oh, I'd tell her to keep firing. I I've never had a call with Kathy. I I had another kind of infamous Twitter exchange. Um, which really, so I, I do have a little short position on Tesla, very small percentage, less than 1% of my, my personal net worth, way smaller percentage of firm capital, very tiny, um, that I put on last fall. Um, I was on vacation and, and happened to read uh, the stock price forecast that ARC had, Kathy's firm, ARC had put out, uh, stock price forecast for Twitter, or, or Tesla rather, of $3,000 a share over a four and a half year period of time, which would get you to a $3 trillion market cap on a business that's currently doing $31 billion in sales and various you know, hypotheses for what their robo-taxi business, which doesn't exist today, will look like and what their energy business, which doesn't exist today, will look like and what their insurance operation on an underwriting basis would look like, which doesn't exist. And you know, I kind of went down the path of the insurance operation, Tesla underwriting insurance for cars. Well, they, they do have a little brokerage operation that through a third party um, brokers um, auto policies for their customers only in California. But there's an assumption by ARC and there are some Wall Street analysts that have assumed that Tesla's insurance operation is worth somewhere on the order of $40 billion dollars. It gets you onto the size and the scale of what is progresso, progressive or Geico today, and you haven't written a dollar of policy. I don't think the regulators are going to even allow an integrated car company to directly underwrite policies. So there are a lot of fallacies. And again, I just think the, back to that premium of the Microsoft valuation in 2000, again, $620 billion on $20 billion in revenues. You know, with Tesla valued when I got into it on Twitter with uh, Kathy's chief um, director of research, I guess, Brent or uh, Brett um, Winston, I think. Um, he replied to a message and we had a, a back and forth exchange. And, you know, I challenged some of the assumptions in their model. And, you know, I just find, uh, again, when you're paying, you know, these these enormous premiums for what what some people think to be almost a sure thing in terms of what that business or any business like that will look like over a short period of time that I find impossible. And then we got into it on, on dilution um, to get to a $3,000 share price, um, you know, with shares out of almost a billion shares already today. And with on a fully diluted basis with the option shares that Elon and some of the folks there have been given, the, the 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 realistic fully diluted share count will be way much higher than a billion shares as Tesla continues to grow if the stock stays up. I mean, simply the exercise of Elon's options will introduce those not yet vested option shares into the public float, and the share counts can be way higher. And there was a retort that well, we'll just assume in our model that Tesla will buy back those shares, which is 
for a business that needs every dollar of capital to grow auto manufacturing to grow into what they've presumed would be, I think it was 5 million cars, up to 10 million cars just in the next four years. You can't get there without money. And the business is not generating free cash. In the next four years, it will not generate free cash. It's going to require a lot of CapEx to grow manufacturing capacity. And then to do some of these nonsensical things like robo-taxi to believe that in four years, we're going to have, you know, 600 billion, whatever the number was, of value assigned to a robo-taxi business. There's just a lot of, I think, um, dangerous thinking to some of those math assumptions. I know I've never you know, directly talk to Kathy, which is fine. I, I offered up to have um, the the CIO there come to a public podcast, you know, be on your pod, for instance, just have a fun, a friendly conversation about, you know, the bull case, the bear case, my valuation case, you know, and poke some holes in it. We didn't do that. She had another thing on market cap to GDP and kind of theorized that there's good deflation and bad deflation. And I think it made a very egregious mistake in terms of what the total value of the stock market relative to GDP had looked like back in the late 1800s uh, and throughout the early part of uh, the 1900s, which was just flat out wrong. And, and she used, though, a case that the market cap to GDP was higher than it is today. Well, I mean, we're over 200% of GDP today. At the peak in 1929, market cap to GDP was 89%. Very small percentage of the economy was done it was conducted via public companies. We were an agrarian society. So at best market cap to GDP, even at the peak at, at moments in the late 1800s, before the crisis in 1873, for example, the highest the stock market could have been was 50% of GDP. And she had it in her math at, you know, arguably, you know, three times current levels. So, you know, six times GDP, total impossibility. And had predicated if that would be the case, and the good deflation that comes from all of this creativity that comes from tech could work its way into uh, justifying these share prices of some of these things that are so far ahead of reality that I think the, the case to be made for the, the common shareholder in some of these stocks today is almost an impossibility. So we could add a conversation about that, and I look forward to the, maybe doing that sometime. I don't, I don't even, I, I wouldn't disparage Kathy at all. She's built a heck of a business there. And she's oh, got a great track record. Um, yeah, I just think, I just think you take their poster child of Tesla, and the danger of market cap today, which is on a fully diluted basis, over seven hundred billion dollars. The stock is down for the year, I believe. Um, but again, growing from a very small base and the things that have to happen to justify it, the impossibility of those things happening. You know, when you put that kind of a case out. And you're running an ETF business that that needs the retail investor to sustain um, the platform. Again, I think some of these things are dangerous. I think some of these Wall Street generated reports, sell side reports, are dangerous. I thought I thought the Arc report was nonsensical in terms of what will actually transpire over four or five years, and so. I poked holes, and, I, and, and that, and that, and that's where that question would have come from. But you know, you have nothing but regard for you know Kathy's ability to grow a business. I'm sure she's a great lady. Um, I, I just really, you know, want to. You know, you, you're just not going to get to a three trillion dollar market cap on a company doing thirty billion in revenues today in four years' time. And 
using the insurance operation, an industry that I know a little bit about, especially the auto insurance side of the business, an impossibility of, of that case coming to pass. And it was clear that the analysts there had no background in how auto insurance works, how the industry works, how losses are reserved for, how the overall cost of running an operation combined with paying claims works, how much capital is required. And so the capital needs of Tesla combined with the capital needs of what would be having an insurance operation and then having a robo-taxi operation were just going to absorb enormous amount of capital. And so I challenged that. And I think that was also you know, a Twitter thread that was pretty widely read. So hence, I think that question. That's probably where that question came from. And and just and for full disclosure, we have nothing but respect for what Kathy Woods has built at ARC. It's incredible. She's an incredible investor. She's really done a lot of great work. But as you've said throughout this entire pod, which will probably be the new title instead of masterclass, price matters. Yeah. Again, I wouldn't I wouldn't price be matters. a good venture capitalist. I couldn't own a lot of the businesses that that she owns because I don't have that kind of vision. Right. Yeah. All right. Here's our final question before we let you go. And it's, it's fitting that we would end on another Buffett question. So we're going to end here. Do you think that Warren is still better than the next generation of value investors that have developed his thoughts and implemented them in the new world with, with all due respect? And are you worried about the unintended consequences of too much passive investing? Damn, we're ending on a doozy. This is a, these are, this is a good one to end on. Well, Mr. Buffett's the GOAT. I mean, you, unrivaled, you know, he, he was investing in a, in a time and a place where there was not a lot of sophistication. There was not a lot of interest in owning common stocks. Born in 1930, you know, cutting his teeth in the wake of the Great Depression and through World War II, household ownership of stocks plummeted after the 89% stock market crash from 29 to 32. The aggregate of corporate America was losing money. Publicly traded corporate corporate America was losing money. I've got a client that was buying GE for you know less than the cash in the business, and you know getting all the other assets for free in 1932 and 33. And so, you know, to go down the path of studying under Ben Graham and you know buying net nets and workouts and you know measuring tangible asset values you know, he was the best and his ability to evolve his thinking, you know, with some prodding from Mr. Munger, but, you know, the world changed and the world of net nets changed. And, you know, I sit and think about my 30 year evolution as an investor and my, my, my deep value background and, you know, kind of where I cut my teeth has evolved as well. I mean, I, you know, I have a far higher appreciation for durable, returns on capital and equity and organic growth for that matter. I'm also willing to go do cyclicals and, you know, own some things um, that kind of your non-classic, you know, growthy type investor would be. There, there are extraordinary investors out there. You know, I, I lament the fact that investing is such a thing that there's so many people coming out of school and that have been cutting their teeth in, in, in our investing circles for so long. When I first went to my, when I went to my first Berkshire meeting in 2000, I bought the stock at 43,700, having been cut in half from 80,000. The audience at that time, there were maybe nine or 10,000 people in the old auditorium downtown. 
I don't go back as far as when they had the meetings at Xarbon and elsewhere. Um, it was a pretty geriatric crowd. I mean, blue hairs, gray hairs. I remember the first time I went, there was kind of drizzling rain. There was a queue of people outside the arena. They opened the doors early. Mr. Buffett was standing at the front door and these blue hairs and gray hairs just blew by him. They almost knocked him over. He was trying to say hi to everybody as they came in, but everybody wanted to get to their seats. But you didn't have, you didn't have all the, you know, the 20 somethings and 30 somethings and the professional investors and people making the trek. Uh, to the mecca of capitalism. You know, it wasn't the scene and the spectacle that it is now. But it, it's that scene and that spectacle and those who have been willing to learn from, you know, everything that Mr. Buffett's been so gracious with his time and his energy to teach all of us as investors. I mean, you know, there'd be no better course on investing than simply read the history of chairman's letters at Berkshire Hathaway. I mean, you know, there's so much there. Um, that we've all benefited from. And for that, it's made our world of trying to allocate capital and find gems and needles in the haystack and find great businesses harder and harder because there's so much brain power being directed at the capital markets. So the ability to have such outsized returns against the broad market, the advantages that he had, he was swimming and he was a big fish in a very, very small pond there was not a lot of competition for what he was doing. Overlaid with the fact, part of that was, again, nobody wanted to invest. You've been so burned by the Great Depression that nobody wanted to touch a stock. We'll have that period again. I mean, mark my words. I don't know when, but you know, household ownership of stocks is at an all-time high today. It's back to where you were. It's back at levels adjusted for uh, various metrics, um, back to 1929, back to late 1960s, back to March 2000 type valuation levels. So households are all in. Institutional investors are all in. You will have a period, you know, if, if we had let the 2000 to 02 downturn run its course, as the Austrians would have, would have kind of, I think, you know, led you down the path of, which to me would have been more prudent because the size of things weren't yet as out of control as they are today, you know, you'd have created a generation that, that had been badly burned. But the, 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 the investors in 2002 that came back into the market by 06, 07, that then lost half their money again, two thirds of their money from the peak in 07 to the lows in late 08 and early 09. I mean, you had a 50% decline in 2002 by the, on the S&P. You had a 66% decline from 1500 and change to 666 twice burn, they don't come back. It's this new crop of investors that are mimicking what happened in the late 90s, that are mimicking the behavior of a lot of the go-go stuff in the late 1920s and the late 1960s that are setting up for the reverse of where we are, where household ownership of stocks is very low, institutional ownership of, of equities, be that public or private, is again very low. And that'll come with a really bad economy. I, I just don't see how you can not have a very bad economy at some point, given the level of the credit stock relative to the level of the economy today. So bad things are coming. I don't know when they're coming. We're not going to grow our way out of this problem. And for that, there's a lot of brain power today that's trying to make a living in this world of, 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 of capital markets. And it's almost too much brain power. Um, and I don't know what the answer is on that. But I, I do know that the interest in investing will wane if you have a durably long period of, of uh, you know, economic and, and stock market decline. But, you know, for that, I think, 
you know, advice, and you said you might want to talk about, you know, advice to young investors. I mean, I would, I, I would have, I would create a discipline. I, I would, if I was very young starting, I would, I would come up with a method. My method has been, you know, to read as many 10Ks and 10Qs and, and, and look at as many companies as I can over time. But, you know, even Mr. Buffett has, and before I'd heard of Mr. Buffett, I was immersed into uh, the value line, the Moody's and the S&P tear sheets in my first job. I got plucked into a, the office of the bank trust company. They didn't even have an office for me. They just said, hang out in here for a few days and, you know, we'll figure out what you're going to do for a living. Well, this was awesome. I was surrounded by all this research and, you know, I had found the value line tear sheets in college. And so there I am just kind of leafing through it. So as a matter of process for my entire 30 year professional career, I've read and or skimmed, if you will, but, you know, read every page in the value line large cap edition, also as well as the small cap and mid cap edition. And it's that process that's allowed me to filter through and look at a lot of companies and a lot of industries four times a year. There are 13 editions per issue. So four times a year it circulates. And you, 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 you know, you look at a 15-year history of financials, you get a snapshot of the balance sheet, you get a snapshot of working capital, you get the share count, you get revenues, you get margins, you get net margins, both in dollars and also in per share terms, which is where the share count comes in. You get a snapshot of returns on equity and capital. It's just, it's the financial numbers that go with that with, with that process. And I don't think being online Maybe you can. I'm kind of old school and I like the paper version. But when I fly, I do nothing but read value lines and listen to music. Um, lay at night in bed and I you know, read through value lines, listen to music. So I've got a process in place where I've looked at a lot of companies over a lot of years. And I augment that with my Bloomberg, you know, because the value line doesn't cover a lot of international businesses. I've got 20% of our capital invested abroad. So, you know, I've got some fluency with international businesses as well as domestic. But, you know, it's that process of looking at a lot of companies. And I would also say I love things like social media and Twitter. Um, and I thank Patrick O'Shaughnessy for introducing me to it. I did my first pod with him and I told him I wasn't going to be on it. And he announced the world that I was on it. And that kind of forced me to send out a tweet. But there are, and I, and I recognize probably a third to a half of the names of the guys that sent in questions to you today. There are some really thoughtful people on Twitter. And there's some dynamite research. Some of these guys that have sub stacks, just, just, just a lot of brain power, but it falls short and, and they don't fall short. I mean, there are some very accomplished people and, so, and they link to some really great stuff, but I don't think there's a replacement for just sitting on your butt and reading 10 K after 10 K after 10 K 10 Q after 10 Q listening to, or, you know, reading earnings calls. Um, you know, when you're breaking down a company, spending time in the footnote. So young investor, every company I would every company I would analyze, start with the footnotes. Start with footnote one and read about accounting conventions. Couldn't be more boring, right? But for the first 10, 15 years of my career, I always read every word of everything I could find. I'm a slow reader. And so I had to methodically work through things and I didn't touch as many stones as I could have. But by seeing the accounting convention changes and things that are coming down the line, you, you just develop a level of understanding, a deeper level of understanding. So, you know, the approach winds up being, I'm looking for red flags. I'm looking for places where these guys are lying to me. And I think that has to be the approach of the investor. You've got to have that discipline though, to see, to see enough reference points again and again and again, 
to then build an arsenal and to get, build a universe of reference points when you're analyzing company A versus company B or industry C versus industry D. I, I'd, I'd spend less time with the social and just more time looking at company after. And, and you know, you're going to get to know 99.9% of the time. You're going to get to the point where you're just not going to invest in the business either because you don't like the business, you don't understand the business, or the price is wrong. But you're adding to that. You're adding to that cumulative knowledge and the cumulative wisdom. And, you know, it, it takes a long time to do that. It's taken 30 years of doing it, and I feel like I'm less far into the game as I was 10 years ago. I thought I knew 10 years ago a hell of a lot more than I know today, and it's an understanding of. Well, there's a lot of stuff out there. You've got to be able to filter it down. To me, no better, no better um, um, use of time than to just look at business after business and, and to take it from the source itself, which is the company. And the other thing on that is when you have time to go finally get a spend with company management, you know, everybody's got an investor relations department. That wasn't a thing 30 years ago. Um, the ability for a young analyst to pick up the phone, get on the phone with somebody at the company, but not be prepared for a conversation. If you're going to spend time and you get, you know, if you have the opportunity to spend time with CEO, CFO, IR of a company, it would take me a week to get ready for a live meeting. I mean, literally, I would read years of K's and Q's. I'd look at all the companies that were competitors. You know, I'd, I'd have, I'd know the business like the back of my hand, and I didn't know it like the back of my hand because I didn't really have a genuine understanding of how the economics of, of companies worked and interacted with each other. But I wouldn't have wanted to embarrass myself by not knowing as much as I could have about the company. It's too easy now to say, Chris, do you have any books you can recommend that tell me about how this thing works? No, no, just look at company after company after company after company. You can augment that with, with social media, but I, I don't think young investors spend enough time looking deeply at companies themselves and living in the financial statements of the company. So, you know, tangent, maybe not how you wanted to end the conversation, but I think that kind of thing for young investors, which is what you thought we might touch on. That, that was the perfect, would be really sorry. No, 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 that was great. I really, listen, you answered the question. I was going to, I was going to ask you that one last one. So I'm I'm happy that you, you went there. So Chris, well, firstly, to everybody that submitted questions online on Twitter, thank you so much. I think I shouted out everybody except also shout out at DC19195. I know we didn't get to all of your questions, but we answered more or less everything that was in there. But, you know, with that, Chris, thank you so much. I, I think we spent two and a half hours <laughs> to answer, <laughs> answer these questions. Um, and we didn't hear the dog or the leaf blower once. You know, we, we that that's an accomplishment right there. So, Chris, with that, where can my audience go and find more information about you as well as Semper Augustus? Yeah, probably our website, SemperAugustus.com. Um, af- after 2015, um, my four years of underperformance, my letter became public document. We decided to kind of blast it out. Joe Coster, my friend, said, let me you know, link to your letter, put it on your website. And I fought him and said, I don't really want my annual letter to be a public document. And he convinced me that it would be good, especially if I wanted to grow with institutions and some family offices. And so uh, we, we, we put my 2015 letter on, which was my kind of my first deep dive on Berkshire and have talked a little about Berkshire every year in the letter. But then we also went back ultimately and put a bunch of the old letters from the late 90s and early 2000s out. So th- those are all on, on, the, on, on the website. Um, 
I've got a bunch of the pods. As soon as you drop this thing, we'll put this podcast on as well. So there are a handful of recent kind of recordings and interviews that are out there. And I, you know, I think, you know, so, you know, I, I, I take what Mr. Buffett has done with his teachings over the years. And I feel 30 years into a career that I've got an obligation at some level to give some back. And I'm not, I'm nowhere near a Warren Buffett, but some of the things that I picked up over the years, I think are valuable. And so, you know, I'm, so grateful to guys like that have taken the time to teach, you know, me when I was young and learning and still learning about how things work and how capital works. You know, I try to do some of that. And so my letters are laborious, laboriously long to most people, but, you know, I'm trying to, you know, at some level teach a little bit and also talk a little bit about process and how I look at the world and how Semper kind of views capital and how we allocate it. But I think for young investors, especially, um, some of those old letters, I, I hope would be, you know, fairly decent um, teaching tools. And then obviously I'm on Twitter at whatever I am at, Chris Bloomstrand, I think. But yep. Twitter, Twitter, I'm on Twitter for fun. I I really don't even like the fact that I'm on it. But, um. but, but so you are. And everyone's very thankful that you are. So, so Chris, with that, thank you so much for joining me today. It was an absolute pleasure. Uh, wishing you continued success. Good luck. Stay safe. And uh, I look forward to meeting you in person one day soon. Yeah, we'll do it soon. Thanks, Bobby. This was great. Really enjoyed it. Thanks for having me, Chris. Thank you. Right. Cheers. Take care. This podcast is for informational purposes only and is not an offer or solicitation of an offer to buy or sell securities. SNN Network, SNN Inc., and the Planet Microcap Podcast and the representatives are not licensed brokers, broker dealers, market makers, investment bankers, investment advisors, analysts, or underwriters. We do not recommend any companies discussed. We may buy and sell securities in any company mentioned and may profit in the event those securities rise in value. We recommend you consult with a professional investment advisor, broker, or legal counsel before purchasing or selling any securities referenced in this podcast. Podcast.